0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was
1: gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue.
2: I hated the book. Alright? I have no idea what it's about and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis?
0: It's required reading.
1: With Tom and Stella, episode 59, World War Z by Max Brooks.
3: They were coming.
0: They came bigger.
2: She begins pounding her right fist on the table.
3: They wanted to come in.
2: Her blows are powerful, mechanical.
0: People screamed. Mommy hugged me tight. It's okay.
2: As her voice softens, she begins to stroke her own hair.
0: I won't let them get you.
2: Now she bangs both fists on the table. her strikes become more chaotic, as if to simulate multiple ghouls.
3: Brace the door, hold it, hold it! The windows broke the windows in front next to the door. The lights got black. grown ups got scared. They screamed. Baby, I won't let them get you.
2: Her hands go from her hair to her face, gently stroking her forehead and cheeks. Sharon gives Kellner a questioning look. Kellner nods.
3: They're coming in! Shoot them! Shoot them. I won't let them get you! I won't let them get you.
2: Sharon suddenly looks away, over my shoulder to something that isn't there. The children!
0: Don't let them get the children! That was Mrs. Carmode.
3: Save the children! Save the children! Pew,
2: pew, pew, pew. She balls her hands into a large double fist, bringing it down hard on an invisible form.
0: Now the kids started crying.
2: She simulates stabbing, punching, striking with objects.
0: Abby cried hard. Mrs. Kermode picked her up.
2: She minds lifting something or someone up and swinging them against the wall.
0: And then Abby stopped.
1: Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we have both read. We determine whether or not it is required reading. As always, I'm Tom Panneries and uh, I'm the one going around interviewing people for the post-apocalyptic debrief, and... My co-host is the one scraping the North Tundra of Canada for surviving zombies and <laughs> shooting them in the head. It's Stella. How
0: yeah, it's always you? me who's got to do the hard work. I don't and know. You're I the picture, one who's probably you... getting some dirty looks from <laughs> the government people that sweeping yeah. up the poo. So uh, that fits. Yeah, that I fits. totally fits.
1: picture you being the one who's just kind of like the survival. Hiking, you know, of somebody's out there, they, you know, killing the zombie and stuff like that. So yep. yeah. Yeah. So and how are you?
0: I'm well. Yeah. It's the heat to, to a certain extent, finally broke here. I mean, it seemed like a really hot summer, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I'm just super glad when now that the cool weather is starting to come in mm-hmm. and, and this is perfect since this is, a nice little spooky episode that yeah. we're feeling that. And my favorite, the pumpkins, the pumpkin-flavored things has come out, <laughs> though I always have seem to have a lack of control where that is concerned. Mm-hmm. But I have had my my pumpkin spice latte at the uh, at the old Starbucks. So, I, yeah, I'm good to go. I'm good go. to go.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've said this before. I am not, I mean, to each his own, I'm not a fan of pumpkin spice. Um, really (laughs) general. I I just don't like the, the, the flavoring of the pumpkin spice latte has too much of a licorice taste to me. And I really don't like licorice flavored things. Um, it's one of the reasons I really don't indulge in Jägermeister because the other reason, because it just knocks you on your end, but like stuff like, um, fennel and stuff like that, it just has a flavor to me that I just don't like. So it's not, it's not the sort of like, Oh, you, whatever with your pumpkin spice. It's like, I legitimately am not a fan of the flavor, but you know, enjoy, enjoy the fall. I love the fall. Yes. So, and then when the peppermint mocha rolls around, that's, (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah
0: <there you laughs> or is. that
1: holiday spice flat white they were doing a couple of years ago i don't know if they still do it that i found really really good so yeah but yeah no i'm looking forward to the colder weather um hope that people who were in the in if anybody is listening here in the northeast or in the south or whatever is uh okay because we had some really nasty storms roll through over the last uh, yeah few weeks here so
0: yeah, it seems to be chaotic. I mean, someone contacted me just to like check in on, mm-hmm. you know, because of everything going on. And they started listing off all this stuff that was going on. You know, there's a shooting in DC. Yeah. You've got the crazy judicial stuff going down there in <sighs> Texas. I'm like, wow, this stuff really is piling yeah. up. It seems really bad when yeah. you put them all together. So, yeah, there's this, woo. I don't know, maybe we need a zombie shake-up. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, before we get to this, though, by the way, I do have a, a very quick mini-review, and it's going to be really quick, because I want everybody to put a pin in this book, because I'm pretty sure that Stella and I will cover it at a, um, a later date, and that is Run. And this is the first in a new graphic novel series by the uh, late, great John Lewis um, and, and his, his writing and, and illustrator partners who, uh, as a follow up to March, and we've covered March um, a couple of years ago, right? Now by now. And uh, this is picks up where March left off. And it's about, um, you know, the, the mid to late 60s the Voting Rights Act and how he, I believe it eventually gets to him eventually to his eventual run and uh, and co- political career in Congress. Um, and uh, it's really, really good. I mean, I just, you know, without giving too much away, because like I said, I think we, I think we might review this. we were trying to decide whether or not do we want to re- review this as an individual book or would we want to do the series as a whole? But then again, The length of time it takes these graphic novels to come out, you know, we're not so sure how long it's going to take. But um, if you have not had the chance to pick it up yet, it's available in hardcover everywhere. Um, You know, I walked into my LCS the day it came out um, because I was going to pick up my books. And there it was on a huge display. And I was like, oh, yes, I'm getting this. Get it. Um, It is it is it's it's phenomenal um, as a follow up to March, as we could hope. And I really, really am looking forward to the next uh, next volume."
0: I'm done with that.
1: So, all right. But yeah, our book is World War Z. Uh, This is a book by Max Brooks that came out in 2006. Um, We're going to do our usual. We're going to go through the history of the book, the life of the author, the plot synopsis, uh, our questions. But before we do that, um, Stella and I both have history with this book, so Stella, I'll let you go first with your history, your origin story with World War Z, and let's let's see zombies as a whole because yeah, okay. this is a because you know this is a um, part of a, a horror sh- subgenre, and you know so so tell me like you know do you have an interest in zombies? What was your first sort of zombie thing, zombie movie, zombie book, whatever, and uh, your favorites and, and your history with this book.
0: Sure. I would say that my history with zombies, or at least enjoying that genre, is pretty recent. I didn't like them, especially in high school and probably college. I didn't really like it. And it's just like kind of the flesh ripping factor, Mm. (laughs) you know, because they always got to zoom in on that when they've got you. You know, and then it's like you see this string of flesh coming away. I'm like, this is just too much. Uh, <laughs> so, I maybe my intro to actually being engaged with that, that form of genre was, in fact, The Walking Dead, but maybe a couple seasons after when it started coming on to Netflix, and I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And since it's more character driven, and of course, it does have the interactions with the zombies. I was able to to get by and, you know, turn my head when all of that stuff was was happening. So I think primarily The Walking Dead is what got me into it. I have read a little something called Pride and Prejudice and Zombies,
1: <laughs> <I figured>. <laughs>
0: which <laughs> which there was a question I added to the document that I wonder if does that, you know, this that compared to this kind of what's the difference there? And then with um, with the Resident Evil games that I wanted to give Resident Evil to remake a shot just because it looked really beautiful. Half of it had a female protagonist, which I always enjoy playing. And with this in particular, so I've grown to enjoy it, though still mm-hmm. the, the flesh ripping can sometimes be too much depending on on what that uh, is like. And I have seen 28 days later. I know there's a question about that in particular. And I remember seeing one scene edited on TV and it's where the father looks up and there was like a a zombie attached to something like, and it was hanging and some blood dropped and got into his eye. And I thought, this is so horrifying that that was the only scene I ever watched. But then, when I was older and I could handle it more, <laughs> I watched the whole thing, yeah, which I'm sure true, we will we will talk about. Yeah. And I had seen the film adaptation of World War Z. I actually just recently rewatched it just mm-hmm. to see how, if at all, it matches with this particular <laughs> book. And – I like suspense more. And there's really only one scene that's like really intense that you're on the edge of your seat and everything else seems more action dominated Mm -hmm. than anything else. And then you had I I think I, I didn't know at all that that was book related. And you had mentioned this particular book to me at one of our. Probably at one of our little cafe. Uh, probably uh, hangouts. when we got
1: coffee, yeah. I
0: yeah, and then I took your recommendation and read it. I don't know how long ago this was. I should have checked my Goodreads. I actually don't know. Well, I think it was on my Goodreads, uh, but I, I don't know how long ago it was. And enjoyed that. I ended up getting the handbook for uh, Jacob, Jacob Sawyer, who will have will appear again on this episode. Mm-hmm. And... Now this is my my second reread through it I have yet to even though many people recommend it you included, I have yet to listen to the audiobook mm-hmm. but I, I just actually got an audible credit today oh, so okay, cool. maybe that's my next thing is to, to get this audiobook and and hear how it is adapted compared to everything. So I feel like that is my history with the going from horrified wine to stay away to somewhat intrigued, but I'm not a huge, I wouldn't say I'm a huge zombie fan because Mm -hmm. there's still, you know, I it's, I'm going to have to do some heavy research before I see a film to see if I, can I actually handle this? Yeah. Yeah um but pg-13 films are okay because you're only going to see so much but yeah it's growing on me and the resident evil i've become a fan of that series so i'm able to uh to handle that and of course the last of us yes so those are kind of different uh zombies just because they're more fungus like and everything Uh but so i guess just like engaging in it has almost tempered my fearful reaction (laughs) to it so yes that is my history Uh
1: Um, I, I'm trying to think of what the first zombie thing I ever saw. Cause zombies were just this monster that I was always like aware of, you know, mm-hmm. going back, just watching TV as a kid and watching movies as a kid. But cause I know I didn't see the night of the living dead until I was out of college. I was in my twenties and I rented it. Um, and I, then I read to day of dawn of the dead and day of the dead, Um, probably the first thing I ever saw involving a zombie, if it wasn't some sort of kids cartoon where they did some sort of like, you know, Scooby-Doo episode or something, it might have been one of those Simpsons Treehouse of horror episodes, you know? Oh, interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, my, my introduction was getting into just really enjoying, I mean, somebody who really enjoys movies and and being online and wasting a lot of time in, in offices when I used to work in them. Um, looking up stuff about horror movies that I was interested in, and, and came around to being interested in the Romero films because I'd never seen them, and, and I always knew Night of the Living Dead was a film, you know, like it, it's 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 like Psycho, you know, like you know this film even though you've never actually seen it. So um, I went and rented it, and I uh, and then I rented the other two, um, saw 28 Days Later when it came out on on video uh, mm-hmm. at some point, and um, I've seen. 28 Weeks Later and uh, and the, the Zack Snyder Dawn of the Dead remake, maybe not that many others, maybe a couple of others. I'm not like a zombie film aficionado or anything. Never really got into The Walking Dead. I watched a few, the first few episodes, and I've read the first trade. I checked it out of the library, and they weren't bad. And I was like, oh, this is entertaining. I just for some reason I just couldn't I was like I just didn't feel like reading anymore. I don't know why. It was just it never it didn't you know, so it wasn't it wasn't a quality thing. I was just like, okay, I've read enough of this and I'll go on to something or else maybe one day I'll come back to it or something. So maybe I will come back and actually watch all of The Walking Dead or Fear of the Walking Dead at one point. But it was just I it didn't hold my interest enough. Um, even though I recognized it was actually a really well put together show. Uh, but my, my history with this uh, with this particular book is uh is pretty likely. So I remember being in Walden Books at
0: Walden
1: Books. Walden Books, and it might have been at the Fashion Square Mall, Mall ah, in Charlottesville, geez. actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, back before when there was a Walden Books in the Fashion Square Mall, and yeah. I think my wife and my mother-in-law were off buying baby clothes at Jimboree, you know, or like one of those places, right? And my father-in-law and I had wandered into Walden Books because that's kind of what you do. And I had some money and I saw this on the shelf and I was reading the back cover and I was like, this looks really, really interesting. And I grabbed it, took it home. I, I, I had heard of the zombie survival guide. Cause I remember seeing it on um, like on display at Barnes and Noble, but never picked it up. I remember flipping through it. I was like, Oh, that's cute, but never really picked it up. And I picked this up and, and it wasn't until like after a little while that I realized it was a sequel to the zombie survival guide. But so I read this just kind of out of the blue and uh and then um I have read it now. This is my fourth time, I believe. Okay. Three times reading it, one time listening to the full cast audiobook. And um I actually use portions of this in English when I taught tenth grade because at the end of the year I used to do this uh just for a fun project of like, you know, creative and and, and you know, having some fun with lit and stuff like that. I used to do this sort of role playing game type of project where or role playing scenario type of project where um students were given like uh locations on on the globe and they had to create characters and then they were given the beginning of a scenario and uh in order to understand like what we were looking at we read um uh the japan chapters the one with the uh the guy who uh who's the computer geek and he uses the, the sheets to climb from balcony to balcony. And the he chapter doesn't after realize
0: that, his father, that his parents are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then the, and the chapter immediately after that with the guy who, with the, uh, with the, the blind guy.
3: Oh
0: yeah. And we
1: read that. And I, and, and one time I also use the chapter that takes place inside the church. It's told from the uh, point of view of the 20 something year old girl. Who's like completely regressed and stuff. Um, so we would read those and then we, I would have students, uh, write their, uh, write their stories of like, how did you survive this scenario? And I actually still have one. Um, uh, I don't think I have it electronically. I just think I have a paper copy, which, which took place in like in, in, in Egypt or Libya or something. And, oh God, it was like so well-written. Um, you know, and so we, we used to have a lot of fun with it. So, yeah, so I, I, so this is, this is, uh, um, and, and so, and I, and I kind of deliberately picked this because it's October when this is airing. I knew that we had both read it at one point or another. So I knew that we, uh, you know, I, I knew this would be kind of an easy conversation for us to have, I guess, mm. you know, it's just kind of like, let's, let's do one that at least, um, you know, spoiler alert that I find fun to do, um, instead of like How dare you, the spoil. last, yeah, the last one, the last one, which was that I chose, which was, uh, was, was a tough one. And, um. The one, and I've, I've had a couple of tough ones this year, so so this is a little little easier for us to do. So so yeah. All right. So <clears throat> Max Brooks is Hollywood royalty. He was born in 1972. His mother is actress Anne Bancroft, hmm. who is best known for playing a number of roles, but uh, many know her as Mrs. Robinson from *The Graduate*. And his father, comedian, actor, producer, director, the legendary Mel Brooks. So he is Hollywood royalty. Brooks grew up with dyslexia. He credits his mother with helping him get an education and fostering his talent. He's told NPR in 2017 that they didn't even call it a disability back then. It was just laziness, goofing off. You're not trying hard enough. You can do it, but you don't want to do it. That was a, that, that was a big one for my teachers. And uh, my mother, one of the greatest, most successful actresses of her day, gave up her career, put her career on the shelf to raise me to be my educational advocate and to teach herself about dyslexia. She took every year all of my school books that I had to read to the Institute for the Blind and had them all read onto audio cassette so I could listen to my reading list and if I hadn't been able to do that, I wouldn't wouldn't have graduated high school. And I can literally say that not only did my mother give me life, she saved my life. And I wanted to include that entire quote because it's it's really important. He dedicates the book for to his mother, who um, prior to the book coming out had passed away from cancer. And uh, you know, so his so Anne Bancroft was a huge huge like huge, obviously it's his mother, but like you know, being a famous mother, you don't always hear that. About you know f- famous kids and things like that, so, so I just thought that was uh, really really important. But yeah, so so he grew up uh, grew up in, in California, in Hollywood, etc. And uh, his first no- notable writing gig was on the writing staff for Saturday Night Live uh, from 2001 to 2003. And then in 2003, he wrote the Zombie Survival Guide. The Zombie Survival Guide is more satirical than it is serious. It's a satirical survival manual for the upcoming zombie war. So in the early 2000s, and you'll probably remember this, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were all these books called the Worst Case uh, Scenario Survival Guide to Whatever. Um, I actually have the one that's the Worst Case uh, Scenario Survival Guide for the Holidays. And uh, they're in some cases they're uh, they're very serious, but it's kind of the same vein. The holidays one is kind of funny. There's like a whole thing on how to repurpose a fruit cake and how to survive a runaway one horse open sleigh. Um, And uh, and it's got like all of these. If you've if you've seen the the zombie survival guide, they're very like kind of basic uh, manual drawings, you know, and. Um, so there's a silliness about it. And that's what the Zombie Survival Guide is, is pretty much in, in the vein of. And it's a fun, I would really recommend the Zombie Survival Guide. It's a fun book to read and, and to read through. But anyway, in that book, he not only gives practical disaster survival skills and advice, but he outlines the nature of the virus known as solanum, which causes zombification. And toward the end of the book, he details isolated zombie attacks that have occurred throughout history. Um, which is really a great portion of the book. It's it's you could it's almost like he's laying the seeds for World War Z in that, or you could kind of like see how this is going to be like a, a really really good, uh, good story if it's it's a huge outbreak on it from his point of view. So anyway, World War Z, the novel we're actually talking about, was published in 2006, and it's the follow up. It's an oral history of the zombie war that the book prepared its readers for. The zombie survival guide prepared its readers for. It's an oral history that was inspired by The Good War, which was an account of World War II by radio host and writer Studs Terkel, who also wrote Hard Times, and oral history of the Great Depression and Working. Uh, i personally read Working. It is a tome, but it's a fascinating, fascinating book. Um, I need to read the other two. Uh, Hard Times, and oral history of the Great Depression sounds really, really interesting. Uh, as somebody who really enjoys like, books like The Graves of Wrath, I think I'd, I'd enjoy that book. Anyway. Uh, Brooks talked about this influence in an interview, saying that Turkle's book is an oral history of World War II. I read it when I was a teenager, and it sat with me ever since. When I sat down to write World War Z, an oral history of the zombie war, I wanted it to be in the vein of an oral history. He also conducted extensive research into politics, economics, and military tactics. The book spent four weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And was well received. Patrick Daly of the Chicago Reader said the novel transcends the silliness of the zombie survival guide by touching a deeper, more somber aspects of the human condition. In his review for Time Out Chicago, Pete Coco declared that, quote, bending horror to the form of alternative history would have been a novel and in and of itself. Doing so in the mode of Studs Terkel might cons- constitute brill- brilliance. Sorry. An abridged audiobook adaptation was produced in 2007, and then a full adaptation was produced and released in 2013 by Random House to tie in with the 2013 film version. This is less of a straight reading of the book and more like an audio drama, with Max Brooks himself playing our book's interviewer. But each of the characters in the book that he interviews is played by a different actor, some of which are actually rather famous. I guess when you're the son of Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, you can get famous people <laughs> to do your audiobook. So here are some of the people Nathan Fillion, Paul Sorvino, Carl Reiner, of course, Carl Reiner, right? Mel Brooks' uh, comedy partner, Martin Scorsese, Simon Pegg, Denise Lieutenant Yar herself, Crosby, Bruce Boxleitner, Ajay Naidu. Jerry Ryan, number nine from uh, Star Trek Voyager, Henry Rollins, Mark Hamill, David Ogden Stiers, Cal Penn, Alan Alda, Rob Reiner, John Turturro, Alfred Molina, Common, and F. Murray Abraham. It really is. It's it's an, it's an like this all-star cast doing it, and um, I honestly cannot recommend it enough. Uh, the audiobook received enormous praise in comparisons to Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds radio broadcast. And uh, like I said earlier, there was also an adaptation of the film. And, and Stella mentioned this earlier. So it was directed by Mark Forster and stars Brad Pitt. Um, It is not a good adaptation no. of World War Z. I found it to be an enjoyable action movie. You know, Um if I. Yeah, c- I, I would agree. Yeah, it, basically the entire film can be summed up in the phrase. Well, that escalated quickly. <laughs> Because if you think about it, like Brad Pitt shows uh, up somewhere, things are okay. It escalates, and then he gets out of wrecked. it. You know? It's
0: just, yeah, I know Israel's the
1: worst. Yeah, Israel's the worst. Which is interesting because in the book it doesn't happen that way. Israel isn't overrun. It's it's Israel's like the example of like how things work. Yeah.
3: Um.
1: But yeah, and then the end is like Brad Pitt being Brad Pitt action because it's Brad Pitt, so he's gonna Brad Pitt all over the place. After uh, after Doctor Who gives him the uh the uh essentially the vaccine.
0: So. The vaccine, which ends up being a terrible virus, <laughs> he
1: it's like they it, it's it, what was it the the spoilers for the movie version? It's like they they inoculate him with a small amount of something like smallpox or something that that his body can fight off, but because the but for some reason the zombies don't notice him because he's not pure.
0: Yeah, they. Basically, they sense the weakness they need, like, a whole
1: yeah.
0: and well body to inhabit, like, the virus. So, well, he he doesn't – he isn't inoculate. He inoculates himself. himself he, yeah. We don't even know what he ends up putting in his body. He's forced because there's a zombie right outside the door of yeah. this stuff. And then, yeah, they end up doing some sort of um, – man, I just watched this. It was, like, this hybridization of <laughs> – Uh, I can't remember what the MRSA was probably a part of it I don't know Mm -hmm. but they yeah they crafted something with like three parts of terrible diseases and that's basically what people were getting so that they could it was called camouflage Mm -hmm. basically
1: yeah and and he he does the slow-mo walk through the zombie horde yeah
3: (laughs) Yeah.
0: because
1: I think they figure it out because like a guy who is HIV positive isn't killed or some. I don't know I will say the scene in Philadelphia at the beginning is is a pretty decent, like, everything's going to hell
3: scene,
1: you know, especially when they're in the car and it's like, you know, you did they pan out? I'm like, okay it's a well-crafted movie. It's just not the book. <laughs> so, yeah. so don't don't go in expecting an adaptation. Just go in expecting a halfway a, a pretty decent PG-13 action thing that happens to involve uh, I think fast-moving zombies if I'm not mistaken too.
0: Yeah, they they are runners which, and they can climb up things.
1: Yes, which is different than this because the zombies in this one are your classic Romero moaning, slow-moving, you know, they just kind of don't stop zombies. You know? Um, yeah. which is, uh, which I actually, I tend to prefer, you know, the, yeah, the kind of, cause I think the, the idea of you being overwhelmed or, or, or that, it's just, there's something about that that just, I think, uh, speaks to it very, very well. Not, not that I don't like 28 Days Later or The Walking Dead or something, but we're, uh, not The Walking Dead, uh, the, the other version of Dawn of the Dead, but we'll, we'll get to, we'll get to all that. So. <laughs> as far as Brooks's other works, in 2012, he published Closer, Limited, and Other Zombie Tales, featuring uh, the story of that name from The New Dead, along with three other stories set in the World War Z universe. I haven't read that. I'll have to track that down. Um, in 2014, Broadway Books published The Harlem Hellfighters, a graphic novel which portrays fictionalized account of, entire, of the entirely African-American 369th Infantry Regiment's experiences in World War I, written by Brooks and illustrated by Kanan White. Sony Pictures has purchased the rights to create a film in the novel. And in 2020, he purchased Devolution, a firsthand account of the Rainier Sasquatch massacre about the cryptid Bigfoot. I own this book, have not read it yet. All right, so here's our plot synopsis, which I cribbed mostly from Wikipedia. It is a long plot synopsis, I will warn you. I'll try to cut it down a little bit. This is, But this is a really involved, complex novel, by the way. There's a lot to this book, um, and a lot, a lot of moving parts and a lot of moving pieces, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So like I said, World War Z takes what Brooks established in the Zombie Survival Guide and applies it, creating a scenario in which the world is overrun by zombies, but then ultimately saved. The novel takes place nearly 10 years after the zombie war, and Connective Tissue is an unnamed narrator – Interviewer, who is essentially Max Brooks, and he is tra- traveling the world in order to cover the entire history of the zombie war, from its origins to the near fall of humanity that's referred to as the Great Panic, to the eventual stabilization of fronts and the retaking of the planet from the zombie hordes. The exact origin of the zombie plague is unknown at the end of the zombie survival guide. We don't know where the virus originated, but there's all these different places where these little isolated incidents happened. But the first cases of what become the global pandemic begin in China. It's implied that the virus is ancient. It was somehow released due to geological disruption caused by the Three Gorges Dam. The Chinese government attempts to hush it up, but they realize that large scale security suits or zombies can't necessarily be covered up. So they start what um, is basically a military crisis with Taiwan as a distraction from the world kind of peeking in and seeing what's actually going on. They also lock down their borders as best they can. But despite that, the plague continues to spread to neighboring nations because of human trafficking, refugees and the black market organ trade. The first large scale publicly known outbreak occurs in Cape Town, South Africa, and that leads to the plague being given the nickname African rabies when it starts. Um, And that actually causes the public by and large to dismiss the epidemic simply as a severe strain of rabies and world governments and the public at large respond to the growing epidemic with total complacency. They don't invest in resources, they don't invest in disaster preparedness, and uh, they ignore medical experts. There's one nation that takes reports of the infection seriously. It is Israel. Israel initiates a voluntary self-quarantine. They close their borders. They construct a massive wall around its entire perimeter. They abandon the Palestinian territories and allow any uninfected Palestinians safe passage into their borders before they completely shut down. It does lead to a very brief but bloody civil war between um, the uh, various political factions within Israel, but it is quickly put down by the military. Most other world governments do nothing. Um, the United States does very little uh, because its overconfidence and its ability to suppress the threat is very strong, and they really don't want to cause a panic during an election year. Special forces do contain uh, initial small-scale domestic outbreaks, But the widespread effort to contain these things never really starts. The U.S. is deprived of political will by little brush fire wars. And there is a placebo vaccine called Phalanx that a drug company uh, markets saying because it is essentially a rabies medication and they just basically rebrand it to say that this will protect you. And this basically causes the people to have a false sense of security everybody takes it to the point where they're marketing things that are like you can wear this and it's phalanx that you can wear or whatever it's like all sorts of like you know crazy snake oil stuff but the following spring a journalist reveals that phalanx does nothing and the infected are not victims of rabies but they are rather walking corpses and this is what causes the great panic Order breaks down all around the globe. Countries discover the true severity of the catastrophe, and for a time, um, there's rioting, there's breakdowns of essential services. These actually kill more people than the zombies themselves. Entire regions are overrun by the undead, though. Millions of panic refugees try to flee to safety. And uh, what happens in Iran is that attempts by that government to stem the flow of refugees from Pakistan result in a nuclear war that obliterates both countries. Russia forces a decimation of its own military to prevent mutinies. Ukraine uses its stockpile of chemical weapons against the refugees and soldiers alike to root out the infected from the uninfected as zombies, unlike humans are unaffected by nerve gas. So they're killing actual people in order to just know who they need to take down. And then the zombies overrun New York city after. So the United States sets up a high profile uh, defense in Yonkers, which is just the North of New York. And this becomes known as the battle of Yonkers. It is an absolute disaster. They try Cold War weapons and tactics that focus on disabling vehicles, wounding or frightening the enemy. But these are zombies. They don't have any psycho uh, psycho psychology to them. They just keep coming at you. Uh, They essentially use human wave attacks and uh, they can only be killed by direct damage to the brain. They have no self-preservation instincts. So basically, the unprepared and demoralized soldiers are routed on live television. And for several weeks, human civilization teeters on the brink of collapse. In South Africa, that government adopts a contingency plan that is drafted by an apartheid-era intelligence consultant named Paul Redeker, and they call it the Redeker Plan. And basically, what this happens is, what happens is this: you establish small safe zones, you leave large groups of survivors abandoned in special zones It's essentially human bait and a distraction to the undead. And uh, you allow those within the main safe zone's time to regroup and recuperate. Governments all over the world use this plan. Sometimes they come up with it on their own. Sometimes they take it and they call it something else. And they actually do prove successful. The United States government establishes its safe zone west of the Rocky Mountains. The U.S. government relocates to Honolulu. Those left behind east of the Rockies are instructed to evacuate north as zombies freeze in extreme cold. Many panicked and unprepared civilians in North America flee into the wilderness of northern Canada and the Arctic, where 11 million people die of starvation and hypothermia. Other safe zones established by surviving governments around the world include the United Kingdom retreating to Scotland and Ireland. um, And uh, with the exception of safe zones in Denmark and Iberia and the Alps, most of continental Europe is totally overrun. Russia retreats to trans Siberia. India establishes safe zones in the Himalayas. South American nations retreat west of the Andes and Cuba because it um, has this island geography, becomes a bastion against the undead and, uh, and actually becomes a, a bit of a superpower by the end of the story. So... Um, Even the uh, the Chinese uh, military mutinies against the government for its incompetence and destroys its leaders with a nuclear strike, after which the new government implements the Redeker Plan and retreats to Manchuria. So the surviving safe zones spend the next seven years gradually rebuilding their industrial base within the borders. And then they hold the UN conference off the coast of Honolulu aboard the USS Saratoga, and basically, the President of the United States says, hey, we need to go on the offensive and retake the planet. Determinedly, by the example, by example, the U.S. military reinvents itself to meet the specific strategic requirements of fighting the undead. Um, they use semi-automatic weapons. They retrain soldiers to aim for zombies' heads and utilize strategies focused on volley firing. And they invent the lobotomizer. I love the name of that weapon. A melee weapon designed to quickly destroy a zombie's head. The economy has rebounded because we have wartime production and the military begins a three-year-long process of retaking the continental U.S. from both the undead swarms and groups of hostile human survivors. Entirely new strategies have to be implemented for this war. And each zombie is an independent fighting unit with no logistical lines or command structures, so it's just a large scale campaign of total extermination, slowly clearing and securing every mile of territory because even a single surviving zombie could restart the infection cycle. Other nations that voted to go on the attack have their own offenses. Uh, Russia um, uses uh, large stores of World War II era tanks, firearms, flamethrowers, and ammunition. The U.K. takes a slow but steady approach, taking until five years after the official end of the war to finish its territory. France um, charges headlong against the undead, uh, displaying extreme valor at an extraordinarily high cost. And an unnamed British army general comments as the war ends that there are, quote, enough dead heroes for the end of time. Ten years after the official end of the zombie war, the world is still heavily damaged, but slowly on the road to recovery. Millions of zombies are still active, mainly on the ocean floor, mountains above the snow line, and Arctic areas such as Scandinavia, Siberia, and northern Canada. Numerous political and territorial changes have occurred during the recovery. Cuba has become a democracy and hosts the world's most thriving economy. Tibet is freed from Chinese rule, which in turn becomes a democracy as well and hosts Lhasa, the world's most populated city. Following a religious revolution, Russia has become the Holy Russian Empire, an expansionist theocracy that adopts a repopulation program, keeping the nation's few remaining fertile women as state broodmares. North Korea is completely empty with the entire population presumed to have disappeared into underground bunkers or been wiped out in the outbreak to the point where nobody actually knows what happened we just have a south korean military official talking about how one day his opposite number on the other side of the dmz disappeared and they can't and satellite photos just show the company, country is being completely empty it's a little fact of this novel that i find utterly fascinating Iceland has been completely depopulated and due to a lack of a properly equipped military force and the huge influx of infected refugees remains the world's most heavily infested country. The overall quality of life for humanity as a whole has diminished as well. This includes shorter life expectancies, limited access to running water and electricity and an ongoing nuclear winter because mostly of the small scale nuclear wars that took place in Pakistan, in uh, Iran and China. But nevertheless, the majority of those who have survived have hoped for the future, knowing that humanity faced the brink of extinction and won. So that is, um, and I even cut that down from what was on my page, uh, a pretty lengthy summary. And, and even then, like you, you go into really granular detail because it's, it's all these individual stories from all these individual people that have a common thread and follow a common narrative of, of World War Z. So uh, before we get into our question, did you like it?
0: I did like it, luckily, since I had to read it twice. <laughs> but no, it's it's really it's interesting because even in the beginning, which is what the preface or the introduction, mm-hmm. it's treated like a real thing. Yeah. So it's not like an intro, like have fun with this whole story. It's like, oh, you know, these interviews took place over such and such. Da 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 da. da. And I think it's a really smart idea. It's something that, uh, or a, a type of writing I've not experienced before mm-hmm. with the the interview. And I mean, really, so many props to max in that he really did some deep dives into religion into cultures that he's like extremely respectful to the different places that mm-hmm. he's going and all of this information is coming out and and seamlessly used. So yeah, I, I enjoy it and I recommend it.
1: Of course. Yeah. Same here. I mean, like, I mean, I wouldn't have read this book four times now if I hadn't really liked it. And I'm with you. Like, I love the fact that he just, he never breaks the, um, the fiction of it. It's just it's we go in thinking, okay, this is the this is real, you know, and and um I, I love that about this. He just it's a it's it's it it's commitment to if you want to call it a gimmick, I guess, but um I had read a oral history prior to this because um a couple of years before this, the book Live from New York by Tom Shales and I don't know who's co author, which is an oral history of Saturday night Live, had been published And that was a huge bestseller. So I was I was familiar with this format and I've read a couple of other ones um, since. And they could be a really, really good format for uh, for storytelling, um, for historical storytelling. And as somebody who likes you, who does like to read some history here and there, um, I liked it. And some and and I found, you know, I found parts of this scary, too.
3: Oh,
0: yeah. You know,
1: that's what I really, really liked about it. Um, so did you read, did you read the zombie survival guide? Have you ever read that?
0: I haven't. Okay. I've only given it as a gift.
1: Yeah. I've, I read it, but I read it after this years after this. Um, and, um, and, and, and the, the second or third time I read, um, world war Z, I deliberately read the zombie survival guide first. And then I read this, you could read this on its own. Like you don't need to read the zombie survival guide in order to read this. Mm-hmm. If you read them both, it's, it's great. Um, But they can both stand on their own as 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 separate pieces, which is also, I think, a testament to his his writing, uh, because they are two totally different types of books. But, you know, they have that connective tissue. So um, so we'll so I guess the other question I have before we get to really into um, the kind of literary parts of it, um, we talked a little bit about our history with the zombie subgenre. How does this compare to you to like the stuff we are familiar with, like Night of the Living Dead and and that sort of thing, 28 Days Later?
0: Yeah, I I think it's more well-rounded. You get to see the before, during, and the after, Mm -hmm. whereas oftentimes with these adaptations, whether it's video game or film or TV, it it seems to be slightly before, like really Mm -hmm. only, you know, like the day of something happens and then it's all about what's it like during, but you usually, but the scale, I guess would be the right word. The scale of it is also small of what we normally engage with. And you're focusing maybe just one character or a group of characters in a particular location. So the scale for this is it's literally global yeah. and you get to see everything. You get to see uh, all sorts of uh, the facets of humanity and, you know, looking at the politics behind it and the military and things like that. And whereas over in, in other places, it's it's usually man versus zombie and then like good man versus bad man (laughs) but that's about that's about it you know there's not really an attempt to restore order necessarily yeah (laughs) to what they're just trying to survive whereas here it's they're definitely trying to survive but can they return to some semblance of civilization so i think the scale is just bigger and more and fuller than than we would normally experience
1: Yeah, and I think part of it is because this is a novel, so he's not, he doesn't have a budget, you know, a production budget in in that regard. So he he could go with the global scope because he just has to write it, right? And now he, he spent a lot of time to his credit, like you were saying, he really gets into, he really did his homework. And and it really really shows, and that I think that's really uh, important to the book. But like you think of like the granddaddy of all zombie films, you think of *Night of the Living Dead*, which was done on a shoestring budget, right? And that movie is 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 terrifying in, in places. It's it's a it's a great great film. Um, and what I like is that these two films can th- that film and this novel can exist alongside each other, and still be like something of the genre that, like, you know, though they're both great examples of it, so, like, you know, you don't choose one over the other. Um, the zombie, the fast zombie movies, were, the fast zombies versus the slow zombies, I like the fact that these these slow movie zombies here, um, I think it he, he weaves them in very, very well, and you get the, especially with the Battle of Yonkers, like, you get the sense of just the mass of, of, of things coming at you, and because they're moving slowly, they should be they should be easier to take down. And yet they just keep coming and coming. And it's just it, the tension, it, the having those slow zombies and having them just keep coming and keep coming ratchets up that tension in a way that if if Brooks had described those described like runner type of zombies, et cetera, et cetera, um, it wouldn't. I don't think this would have worked. Uh, what do you think?
0: If they were faster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know how you survive a fast zombie, frankly. I mean, they show it to a certain extent in World War Z, but really Brad Pitt only survives because other people are getting felled right
1: behind him. Oh, he's also Brad Pitt.
0: Yeah, that is also true. I, I also don't know how it would work.
1: Uh,
0: biologically mm-hmm. or, I don't know, I just feel like your muscles are so broken down yeah. after your... De- I mean, that's the point, they're in a state of decay. Yeah. I don't think that they should have, like, maybe if they've just munched on someone they could have a boost in metabolism and, like, start running real quickly but, no, no I mean, they are horrifying. There are runners in um, 20 days later, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... It does make me more nervous, mm-hmm. the runners, but I, I think the fear of the other ones is that they're so slow moving that actually they they come upon you without you really realizing it. And by that time, you're like already surrounded and it's it's even more horrifying. Yeah. So with a lot of this, yeah, I don't know how um, humanity could have potentially survived. Mm-hmm. It would have just been harder. Like I'm, I'm just even thinking about. Where were they? Nevada, maybe? Or Nevada? Maybe it was New Mexico, where they had that huge stand mm-hmm. and yeah. killing so many of the Zeds that there was like a mountain and everything. I mean, just think about so many coming. You just get overwhelmed. Yeah. So it's almost an impossibility, I think, to survive if they were rushing towards you. Yeah. And biologically I don't think it makes sense. So I do like the slow moving ones, if only because I feel like humanity stands a
1: chance. Yeah. I I I enjoyed um a good portion of, of the Dawn of the Dead remake for what it was because it was just enjoyable. Um the the fast moving zombies in 28 days later worked because they're technically, I guess not zombies. They're infected with a virus that causes them to have that sort of they call it the rage virus. And they're technically alive because toward the end of that film, when it is 28 days after the the climax of the film, you see um, shots of these zombies. They star- have essentially starved to death, you know? Um, yeah. Um, so, like, that worked for me because of little elements like that. But I'm with you that... The, just that, that that slow moving and it, that mass keeps coming and that that scene at the end in, in New Mexico or the, the 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 big first battle that turns the tide, right? In New Mexico where they're coming and coming and coming. It really just reminds you of like something out of like all quiet on the Western Front, um, or like some World War One battle like the Somme or something like that, where they just kept sending me- like in the Battle of the Somme, it was like like hundreds of thousands of dead in the first day. They just kept sending men over the top, kept sending men over the top. And it, and I think he really captures that really, really well in, in moments like this, where it's like the enemy is just keep sending people. And they were like lining the, the, the soldiers up and they would fire, they would fire, and then they would be replaced and fire again. And it was just this, they had to be as automatic as the zombies in that moment because, or or, un, or just kind of like, um yeah, automatic, because the enemy wasn't going to stop for them. If they got tired, they had to come off the line. Yeah. So I thought that was a really, really cool little detail. Um, yeah, well, we said this was scary. Um, we're going to get into some some very specific uh, things in there. And it's not, I don't know about you, I don't find it just scary because of the zombies. There's other things in here that I find very, very scary. Mm-hmm. Um that scene in the church where it's clearly that all of the adults yeah. are killing the children, yeah.
3: Um,
1: is and the fact that that's told from the narration of a of a young woman who has essentially reverted psychologically into a scared little girl. Mm hmm. Um, the story that
0: the ferals, aren't they? Is that yeah what the
1: called? ferals. Yeah. The then there's the um the the, I was joking at the beginning, like the the woman who's uh, cleaning up the thing in Canada, the, the story of the camp in Canada gets scary because it's like, you know, she's like, oh, I tasted this soup and it was really good. And it's like, oh, I know what's in that soup.
0: Yeah. Like, Is that the one about her parents? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Her parents, okay, like yeah. her dad, one of them's crying. The other one's, you have to eat this. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, crap. Like you know what's been what's
0: and they may have added to it because they went out and went into somebody else's tent mm-hmm. and you're just like oh geez yeah yeah and there were trials weren't there surrounding it I wanted a Think little so. bit more about that yeah because there were some mentions of kind of like humanity trials or something and I thought oh what's this about I wonder if people were on trial for cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent you allow that to happen in your mind as as a reader or like a legitimate. I mean, I think about the I'm so sorry. I, no, no, it's I okay. took you off
1: track. Of no, it's question. OK. It's OK. It's okay. Go, go, go.
0: But just thinking about was it the Brazilian like rugby team or oh, do you remember oh, this happened?
1: Um, it was made into the movie Alive um, yeah. back in the 90s and they crash landed and they had to eat some of their dead teammates to survive. Yeah, yeah, it was a soccer team. I don't know. If it was Paraguay. I don't remember the name of like which country it was, but it was a it was yeah. a country in South America.
0: Anyway, yeah, I just thought about that. Like, yeah. what do you do? I mean, you're gonna die if yeah. you don't. Do you use as long as there's not murder involved? No. I don't know. Do you? Uh. Anyways, you continue on. With no, your no,
1: question. but you, but I you made a, one of the points you made in, in what you were talking about was how like you wanted more of that. But like in a yes. really good, but in a good way, not as a criticism of the novel, but because he can only put so much into the book. Yeah, you're like, yeah, I true. totally would read a a, a sto- like you. It's almost like he's built this world and now he want like the spin-offs of the other stories. Like you just want to see more and more of this. You want to you want to you want to go exploring across this world safely, mind you, and find all the expansions of the stories that you've read. That you're like, oh, I want to know what happened to this person or or like a little bit more about this and that and this and that. And that that really, really adds to just the mystique around this book. It's really, really good that way. Um, Now the here's the interesting thing though, the novel doesn't really have a plot in the traditional sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's a historical retelling. So there is essentially a plot where the protagonist is humanity and they are faced with a crisis they come up with a way to over respond to the crisis and overcome it after various setbacks, and the they eventually do get the world they get their planet back and they have overcome the crisis. There's still some things lingering on, but humanity has essentially changed by the end. So if humanity is the protagonist, that's about it. But we don't have Brad Pitt. <laughs> you know, we don't have a we don't have a hero yeah. in the book. In, as far as the person that we follow, like like a Katniss Everdeen or somebody, right? Um, so is this a novel with a full plot? Is it a collection of connected stories? Is it both?
0: That's interesting. So a collection of, you know, it leads me right to Mango Street, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like, ooh, maybe. Well, they're definitely not vignettes then. Mm-hmm. So I think I would cross that out. a, A collection of stories... I think makes sense, but they're interconnected mm-hmm. really well. So, for instance, you're talking about that church scene. And I think while you're reading that scene and given her lack of vocabulary and like what her perspective was, it's it's not 100 percent clear what's going on because you just know that she was being strangled and someone else was. But you don't know that everyone was being killed, yeah. but it's referenced on at least two other occasions by other people of this particular church mm-hmm. and what that church did, which is which is something that's really strong about this novel that people know or are aware of other things that are going on. And so it'll pop up in that that narration as well. I guess the the plot. I mean, would be following this virus Mm -hmm. from start to finish, watching it begin, it wreak havoc throughout civilization. And then how do people, you know, start fighting back and now, oh, we're reclaiming civilization. So it's not, I think, an ideal plot in terms of what we expect and what we're used to Mm -hmm. on this show and literature in general. But I think there is one. But I would also say that it's a collection of stories that weave really well and are connected together.
1: Yeah, I would agree, Um, because there are certain chapters of this that you could read almost like in a short story format on their own. Yeah. Just knowing that the context of this, that there's a zombie war going on and you don't really have to get much background. Um, The two stories that I used to use for the Japan portion were one one of the reasons I used them was because they could stand alone on their own as stories where you have a protagonist in the story about um the the, the computer geek kid whose name is escaping me right now and um and what he does and how he gets out and etcetera and it's a really it's a really cool story um you know and so but yeah you're right there's a whole there's an overarching connective tissue narrative. Um, The other novel that I go to when I think of something like this is the things they carried. Um, There are common characters throughout the things they carried. It's just different stories featuring featuring those common characters because they're recurring. Here we have some common characters and we have some common elements, but there are a lot of kind of smaller side protagonists through, you know, who don't make more than one appearance and that sort of thing. So, um. All right, so uh, there's something y- you mentioned, and, and we really can get into the individual things here. We can get into uh, kind of brush over them as much as we want or not. How well the novel gets across or looks at the military, politics, religion, re- religious things, civilians, <laughs> and yeah. physical and psychological uh, concerns, because it really is truly a global idea of a work, mm-hmm. like, you know? Um, so let's start with the religion. Cause I think the military and the politics is like really on up front, mm-hmm. you know, cause it has to be, you know, if, if you're going to have a societal collapse and in the summer you heard about like this government creating this plan and this, and the president of the United States turning on and doing this and stuff. So it's kind of like he knows what he has to do with the politics and then the military is like a is is a no-brainer. No pun intended. <laughs> that yeah. that you have you have this thing of the military falling at Yonkers and then, then having completely changed the way they do things and then push forward. So there's that. But like religion, it, it's part of this in some parts, but it's it's not as driving a force in the in the things so so what what was your uh, read on how what this novel does for um religion
0: yeah i think i feel like it it did well to again be respectful but also show probably um what some uh, a, religious zealots or like B, regular religious people that may be caught in some sort of further mm-hmm. fervor, w- how they would potentially react. I think maybe the only thing missing is like anyone – did anyone come out and start yelling like, this is what we deserve? Actually, I think there was a yeah. scene about that, wasn't it? Like so. and so. that's that's pretty true. I think that people are going to go that route or no one uh, – No one worshipped, I think, the zombies, though, or, like, thought that they could find their their dead ones, their loved ones in there. (laughs) No,
1: nobody worshipped the zombies.
0: Yeah, but with the – I mean, we know that there are some some crazy religious, even, you know, like Christian organizations um, specifically, you know, like kind of down south there. So I can imagine – Youth and like some group trying to protect their children by euthanizing them. Mm-hmm. I think if you were to look at that, because it's see, on the outside, I feel like there's so many layers because <laughs> it seems it's bad. It's really bad. It's horrendous when you're reading about it, both through the girl's perspective and then listening to other people mention it as well. But in the moment, here's where empathy comes in. I can totally see why. They would do that because they're just trying to protect their children from potentially a fate worth, worse than death, though the only because I guess the zombies were like ready to to burst in there, Um, though there just was there was no chance like, you know, giving them a chance, which we saw that girl does, in fact, survive just to the, the extent of it, I guess yeah. one could debate. So I I understand that the interesting one I don't well the woman that we I guess we talked to twice I don't like that at all um, it basically seems like a Handmaid's Tale situation oh the
1: the Russian
0: uh, yeah yeah the, you called her a brood that, mare. that was <laughs> the that, brood that was used in, in the your that was used
1: in the Wikipedia synopsis were, that wasn't okay. my word that was Wikipedia
0: <laughs> yeah but, I, I'm pretty sure you counter her like really closely at the beginning because he's not able to use a transcriber for that particular interview yes. but can just have his recorder and then at the end you realize what's going on. So I didn't like that at all but it's probably likely that someone would be used like that. A really intriguing one I thought was the father who gives last rights and in giving last rights he ends up euthanizing people. Mm-hmm. Um Usually, I guess with a gun, that's that's what he does. But there was something which I wish we could have dove into more in that section because he doesn't answer or he's playing coy where the interview is asking, like, was this a response to something? Oh, I wish I had it up with me. Do you remember what I'm talking about? And the father was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, oh, I think I know that like the government used it basically to get rid of people. Mm hmm. Or to say like, oh, we're doing this just like the fathers are. But actually they were abusing that power. And so um, that made the father uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think it's religion ratcheted up a bit as any sort of crisis does. and But it's used, again, I think thoughtfully and creatively like, oh, how would this potentially be? And I think there's empathy and love Within there, it's just also a bit perverted. Like when you talk about a priest giving last rites, that seems really bad, (laughs) last rites with a gun. But also when you're reading his whole – transcript you realize he's doing this to protect their souls so that they're not committing suicide because they've been bitten Mm -hmm. so he's you know helping them out so there's this layer uh, brooks is able to create this layer of basically like the beautiful and the grotesque kind of like flannery o'connor where you've got something that seems great but when you dig deeper it like looks really bad or even vice versa so i think hopefully that answers the question yeah (laughs)
1: yeah he doesn't he doesn't lionize any one group and he does not condemn any one group. Mm-hmm. I've noticed in this, um, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really, um, uh, getting into the kind of the, the, we brushed upon the psychological things with, um, mm-hmm. some of the people who were, when Feral and that, that young girl, um, the and we're, we're gonna get to specific stories and moments and things like that uh, there's a lot of the civilian stuff in here as well um that I think is really really important you know that great panic scene is is just outstandingly written where it's like scenes on a highway and the zombies just breaking into cars and people trying to get out of towns and it's everything is just clogged and and just it's just absolutely just horrifyingly awful and there's this one scene um, in uh, the suburbs. It's right at the beginning of the great panic where um, you know like there's a zombie crawling across the uh, like the dog is barking like crazy and there's a zombie coming across the yard and and um, and it's it's one of those great scenes where the where the woman who is narrating it, who I believe in the book is narr- is, is voiced by Denise Crosby. Um, is talking about how like they had all her entire family. Oh yeah. We all got phalanx and like, you know, they all fell for yeah. the placebo and, uh- and then right when everything turned, it was like, Oh my God. And they, they got out alive or most of them got, or at least she did. And, and she talks about like, you know, how, you know, we do what we have to survive and what we you know how we changed. And I think that's really important. That whole idea of survival and what you have to do, which we see on these smaller scales, um, but we also see on a larger scale. Um, and so, skipping down a couple of the questions in my in the document, um, the plan that works is, if you really think about it, pretty horrific. Like if if you're if you're one of those people who is like you know really speaks of humanity and things, you're you sacrifice a certain amount of pop the population for what's mm-hmm. considered the greater good. So basically you create your compound, you create your walled off portion, your safe zone that you can defend and anybody who lives outside of that safe zone. And in some cases, I think they, they pushed people toward an area outside of the safe zone as bait to distract the zombies yeah. And you're essentially sacrificing a certain amount of you're deciding who lives and who dies as a government. Um, it's like the trolley problem, right? You know, like what's the philosophical moral moral dilemma? Yeah. How how can can we wrap our heads around this as readers of this book? I mean, like it, it's it makes me feel uneasy that like, you know, that that we would have to w- live in a world where Where governments are deliberately doing this. Uh, What was your take on that whole, the Redeker plan, as they called it in the book?
0: Yeah. um, And I guess they were doing it a little bit anyway. Some of those military installations were leaving civilians and and going or using civilians as bait to a certain extent Mm -hmm. to get out of there. So it was used in bite-sized pieces as well. Yeah, it seems, I mean, especially if you're one of that party, it seems pretty bad. And I guess we're we're getting to some philosophy. Would this be Kant, maybe, about um, really sacrificing so. the, the smaller,
3: it's been um, or
0: the years. less, in order to to help? Mm-hmm. So, <sighs> I mean, honestly, <laughs> there's no good solution yeah. here. I don't th- know that there was really any way to get everybody out of there. So this is the, the least. And you saw what happened to the man who made the plan. Mm-hmm. He basically broke. Yeah. Um, internally. Yeah. Mentally. And um, yeah, so even he realizes. So I think it's unfortunately one of those like necessary evils that you're going to have to. It is the trolley. You're going to have to push somebody off a cliff in order to save that group behind you even though the the people is probably in the hundred k's i guess um and then hope that you can rebuild otherwise you've got no hope if you um are are sacrificing everybody
1: yeah um yeah paul Redeker, who is the person who um who comes up with this plan um you're right his mind essentially breaks and there's an interview that that Brooks has um, in a, what's essentially a, a psychiatric ward with mm-hmm. a patient and he's talking to them and the patient is giving this sort of like um, very weird interview and I'm trying to find it in the book um, I think I'm, I'm too far up uh, where like he's, he's talking as a different person um and he's uh, he's giving like the whole um, rundown of like how this came up, and as if, as if he was at the meeting where um, Redeker came up with the plan and everything. That the name we're giving is so Zol- Zolo- Zolelwa Azania, and. Um, and uh talking about the turning point and how they came up with the plan and everything. And the last, um, you know, he says, uh, he talks about Redeker. He says, Paul Rediker, an angel and a devil. Some hate him, some worship him. me, I just pity him. If he still exists somewhere out there, I certain sincerely hope he's found his peace. And then Brooks's narration, which is in parentheses and bold type after um, after what this guy says. Is uh, after a parting embrace from my guest, I am driven back to my ferry for the mainland. Security is tight, and as I sign out, as I sign out my entrance badge, the tall Afrikaner guard photographs me again. Can't be too careful, man, he says, holding me the pen. A lot of people out there want to send him to hell. I sign my. St- I signed next to my name under the heading of Robin Island Psychiatric Institution, name of patient you are visiting, Paul Redeker. And we weren't aware that it was a psych ward until that very sentence. So he kind of there's mm-hmm. that little nice little twist there. And the guy yeah. like completely cracked it and became a no, totally other personality type of thing. Um, and it's a little vignette too. Like you're, you're right. It's, it's, and it was uh, the psychological toll it took on these people, and even the person who, yeah, you're right, who came up with the plan to kill a certain portion of humanity to save humanity as a whole. Um, yeah, it is a philosophical. This would be a good debate for a philosophy class. Like yeah. this, using these portions of this novel about this plan. Um, this would be a really, really good debate for a philosophy because I think it would be a practical application of philosophy in a sense, mm-hmm. you know, cause you mentioned Kant. I haven't read Kant in 25 years. I can't remember anything from, from any of that, you know, Hegel and all that and like, and from, from modern philosophy class. But if you put this in front of me and we, we read and read the philosophy behind it, like I'd knock, knock that quiz out of the park, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
1: um, in the same way that uh, I can plug another book I've read, uh, Daniel Dresner, who is a professor and a colu- an occasional columnist for The Washington Post, wrote a book called Theories of International Politics and Zombies. And it's all how people of in groups of different political philosophies and theories would handle a zombie apocalypse. And it's a way to explain, like, essentially what socialism is, what modern conservatism is, what progressivism is, and all these things through this lens. And it's a really, really fun book to read for a political theory book. So, yeah, I, I like how Brooks does that in here as well. Um, before we get to looking at individual moments that, that we kind of pointed out, um, there's two questions we want to ask. And these actually have more of a contemporary day application because this is where... Um, reading this, we're like. And at one point, you texted me, you're like, "Oh, wow, this originates in China." Yeah. <laughs> and, and it does in Contagion too, which is uh, which is the Paul uh, uh Steven Soderbergh movie, which um, you know, we don't find that out until uh, I think the very end of the movie.
0: The very right end, under. yeah.
1: Um, but also, uh, you know, we are dealing with a global pandemic that you know didn't. You know, and I'm not I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I, you know, I'm not the type to call it any of those really um, terrible nicknames and, and really anti Asian racist nicknames that, that people were giving it. But the some of the first outbreaks of, of covid were in in Asia, specifically in China. Um, and uh, so why do you think he chose China as the origin of this zombie virus. We could have chosen anywhere in the world. Yeah. Why China?
0: That's what I've been wondering. (laughs) I think... I would say two reasons come to mind. And then... a third potentially that I'll, I'll mention okay. the first reason I think it's population because it is so dense mm-hmm. that it makes sense that if anything were to happen, it was probably cause there are a lot of people and just germs and viruses in general. Mm-hmm. Um. The second reason I feel like China, well, I'll say specifically Asian countries, countries seem to have this really interesting culture where you have modern juxtaposed with traditional Mm -hmm. and so you have villages that seem like you're just kind of in the past of like this is how China used to be and then you could go to a city center it would be like this metropolis and it's it's very modern so maybe that's because that's actually where it originated was in a kind of the past as I'm calling it, um, this the village. Yeah. I don't know what that necessarily says about <laughs> you know, where viruses would go, but because historically, and I guess really now, it's hard to get medication there and good services there, that it would also be likely that someone from that section, whether it's poverty-stricken or not, would also be a patient zero. Mm. My thing would be... Some other place that I think would be easy to do that, which he kind of touches on is Africa Mm -hmm. because of, you know, African rabies and everything. But I wonder if maybe he didn't want to do that because racism, basically, Um, because, you know, people go and and. I don't know, call African like backwards and all of that stuff. So maybe he wanted to get away from there. And so he wanted to do something that's different and it just happens now because of other releases as well as COVID itself, that it seems like, Oh wow, this is really close to home. Yeah. Um, was it a biological weapon though? Because since the military knew about it, I mean, was this kind of, um, (sighs) Umbrella asked for Resident Evil, asked that maybe this wasn't just uh, a weird happening, it was an experiment, and it somehow made its way in here.
1: Not that I'm sh- I, I don't think so, because I think okay. the, the origin of it is that, okay, so they built, if I'm remembering correctly from the very opening of the book, that they were in this, lo- this village, that um, when they built the Three Gorges Dam, which is one of the hugest dams in the world in China, they essentially flooded out and buried... Um, the old village. So they built a mm-hmm. new village, you know, at a higher elevation or whatever, and the residents moved all their stuff, but some of the buildings from the old village were still there. And what people tend to do, um, either on the black market or whatever, is is sell artifacts they can find from that old village by diving into the reservoir, because the old ancient village is at the bottom of the reservoir. The yeah. The Three Gorgeous Dam. And somebody was... So, like, they would dive for artifacts and they would bring them up. It was totally illegal, um, you know, and, and maybe the government's looking the other way or they're able to do it because, you know, who's really paying attention? And somebody dives down there and there's oh, a zombie at right. yeah. the bottom. There's there's a couple of these things because it's, it's, it's implied that this virus has been here for hundreds of years, thousands of years, yeah. maybe. And somebody gets bitten. And um because one of the first people he interviews is the doctor who was treating these people and he's mm-hmm. like trying to figure out and trying to figure it out and the government and the military swoop in and their role is not as kind of a biological weapon they're trying to cover it up they're they're trying to like you know suppress anything yeah. and um and it does not go the way they think it's going to be and i think that also adds to the realism you know the chinese government is notorious for covering things like this up um and i'm not saying that they they do this now, but you know, it's it's just it it, it tracks with what we know or are or stereotypical thinking of the Chinese government, not of the Chinese people, the Chinese government. And also the spread out, out of China makes a lot of sense because it's done on the black market and it's also done through refugee streams and things like that through countries like Afghanistan and, um, and and the Indian subcontinent where you know China kind of borders and and they' they're able to get themselves across and bribe things like that so they use government corruption to their advantage as well. Mm-hmm. Um, had this originated in India, you would have had a very similar densely packed huge population because India's population is the second largest in the world. Okay. Um, I don't know how the Indian government would have acted. I don't know how this would have played out. As far as, you know, a crisis and stuff like that. So but it is interesting to see that he's early on. He's even playing with geopolitical things, like to the point where he or China, like literally starts kind of like a Chinese a war with Taiwan or tries to start a war with Taiwan just to distract everybody from what's really going on and stuff like that, which is the sort of wag the dog type of thing, you know,
0: <laughs> which doesn't help. anybody. No, it doesn't
1: help anybody at all. Um, but then we have like one of the things that, and I even like years after first reading this, I always remember the whole phalanx part of the storyline and how God, how realistic that is to me, like that people are mm. just, you know, here's this yeah. thing that's going to cure. And it's like um, and, and people can be really lulled to complacency by being told, take this, take this thing, you know, and it's going to be um, and we're not talking about a vaccine, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're talking about something that's kind of a rumor against something that's something that's that's a rumor, you know,
3: mm-hmm. so
1: it's not a it's it's like having almost like, you know, take these essential oils for like whatever, you know, Or it is. It's essentially snake oil. And um, and the guy, the guy who invented it is like when he's interviewed, he's like in Antarctica. He's like so hated that he had to go to like the most isolated place in the world and like if he steps off his compound, he's going to get like t- dragged into the town square and tarred and feathered. He's like, he, he is public enemy number one because, and he, and he doesn't really, he, he passes his responsibility. And he was like, yeah, I, I, did, you know, I developed the drug, but you know, there are all these other people who came up with the like, phalanx air purifier and all that crap you know like they're the ones responsible for it so which is very
0: yeah he never he never owned anything yeah
1: yeah which to me is very accurate that's very corporate to me you know we, yeah. we've we seen so many men like that who are just like oh it's not my fault you know and i i really really uh like that aspect of this book it, it's Terrible, but I like that aspect of this book. What do you yeah. think? What do you think about that? The the American pre Great Panic stuff about about the United States. Like, what was your impression of that? What do you think he's trying to say?
3: Ooh.
0: Um, well, I think America <laughs> has so many opportunities that other nations don't, and we're gonna. Jump on something if they if we think it's gonna protect us. Mm-hmm. and so I think we're easily duped to a certain extent mm-hmm. um, but believably easily duped because of well, of course we would have you know something that will protect us from this rabies business,
3: yeah,
0: um so I mean, it seems well, it's atrocious on his end, just that he does play on fears um, and then we are just. We just lap it up. I'm trying to think if uh, did we show camaraderie in this book as Americans? Would you say overall we were pretty, pretty together, and looking out for one another, or was it touch and go? I'm just thinking about you know, COVID has really, I think, it's... shown uh, like Americans are pretty individualistic to a certain extent,
3: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and which is positive sometimes that you know you're, you're trying to be the best you can be but in this instance you also should be helping each other and everything and so I yeah kind of connecting it together do, do you feel like we were working together in this novel or did you see more uh, everyone's out for protecting his or her or their selves
1: um I think it gets worse before it gets better, just like the zombie war um, itself. And I think by the end of the book, we were a lot more together as a people in America than we were prior to the great Panic and everything that happened. Um, you know, you see you see less of a um, obsession with status among people. You know, there's this whole thing of like people who are like film company executives doing like plumbing and things like that. Things that the in some cases, there's still stories of people who are looking down on like, you know, having to do certain what, what they would have referred to as blue collar jobs. But then there are others who are like, you know, I've never felt better in my life than what I'm like growing crops or. Mm-hmm. building houses and things like that and i think he's he, i think he's making a point of stripping not going in the direction of something like american exceptionalism i think he actually is in the pre in the pre-zombie stuff the, the pre-great panic stuff he's actually criticizing that notion of American exceptionalism. Like you were saying, the mm. idea that we're the best country on the planet, of course we've got the cure and it's etc. etc Um, and I think when things come out, it's almost like he stripped us down to something that is very to him, like pure about like what we want to do. We like to do, we like to make, we like to, we, the things that we took away by our own advancements that, yeah. that once we rediscover them, you know, that 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 provides us with a little bit of hope or a little bit more purpose. And in that purpose, we have more of a a sense of community with one another. So although it's interesting how harsher the laws are, you know, is they having public executions and they're not as you know, it's not as a slow process as it is in our modern day. Um, it,
0: well, they don't have as many public executions. Yeah, that's
1: true. That's true.
0: Those are just extreme examples yeah. because they can't really lose mm-hmm. many people, many healthy bodies, as well as like motivation wise. So they do those public, um, remonstrations. Yeah. Or, yeah, they put them in stocks and things like that. So old school.
1: Yeah. You almost want to, again, like, oh, I would like to see more of America in this particular book and it, in, in a way that I would like to see more of the stories. Um, mm-hmm. because I think, especially in, in today's climate, you could do an examination of our political polarization. And mm-hmm. if you have like the battle of Yonkers and you have, you know, does somebody in, out in like Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is mostly rural, look at that and say, well, the zombies are a city problem you know mm-hmm. in the same way that you know that some people looked at covid and are like oh that's a blue state problem you know well liberals are taking this too seriously like could you dive into that could you dive into how this changes the racial makeup of america because it it's a it's an all inclusive virus you know it yeah. doesn't affect it doesn't have any different effect on black or white or native or Latinx or like whatever person, like, no matter what who you are, it's going to get you in the post zombie America. What is racism like? What is what is our racial makeup like? What is has race is this killed racism? You know, is it like, yeah, and and again he doesn't have the space to explore it in this book. There's, you know, like that, it would have made this book like 3000 pages, but like you as, as we talk <laughs> about it, I'm like, Oh, that would have been fascinating to explore yeah. because at the end, Night of Living Dead has a great point about racism, like, you know, and in in, in, toward the end. Um, So we could explore like, Oh yeah. What would that do? You know, like what would that do to <laughs> the relationship between black and white people or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Does yeah. it make us more xenophobic? You know, like uh, 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 in that case with with immigration and things like that, does it make us more open? Do we feel a less of a sense of an identity as Americans and more a sense of identity as humans and things like humans, that? So it would be yeah. really, really or interesting.
0: Or living humans, yeah. Yeah, and
1: I think that he kind of touches on that part a little bit and that everybody kind of feels like everybody's kind of all, we've all gone through the same thing, but I don't think he – has a sentiment at the end. It ends on a really nice positive note in that you feel everybody who survived the war is still exhausted. Mm -hmm. But you feel that unlike some other zombie films, like Night of the Living Dead, like Snyder's Dawn of the Dead remake, and even to an extent the original Dawn of the Dead, there's a feeling of hopelessness you know, like Dawn of the Dead, they fly off in a helicopter. They only have so much fuel. Like you're like, but we don't know what happens to them, and you're kind of hoping they're going to be okay. But the situation doesn't look good. Night of the Living Dead is just such a it's it's such a downer of an ending. Um, the Dawn of the Dead downer comes. The the Dawn of the Dead remake downer comes in the in the. Uh, ending credits 20 days later has an uplifting ending this has an uplifting ending this makes you think that humanity is going to make it whereas there are other movies Mm -hmm. like this that kill off everybody because that's cool you know that sort of thing yeah
0: remember the secessionists we don't know too much about them
1: yeah that's true you know we could go and and because once we abandoned the country, because they abandoned everything east of the Rockies, and all these little fiefdoms started popping up, which is pretty realistic. We do have, like, militia types and, and those sorts
3: yeah. of things. So. Yeah.
1: so let's get into some specific things, you know, the specific little stories and stuff like that. Um, I really liked the scenes on the highway in the... Um, in the Great Panic, I could really picture that in a visual sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, when the Great Panic starts, like, how did you react to that when this finally comes around and everything has busted open? What were your, what, what were you feeling? How were you thinking? Were you waiting for this to happen? What was your, what was your reaction
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I, I feel like it's just with any sort of disaster film, you like are ready for everyone rushing and yelling mm-hmm. and all of that stuff and there's no way out, you can't do it. So I was waiting for it to, uh to happen. I think it's just inevitable with who we are as human beings that fear takes over and yeah, you're not sure. I mean, you want to get out of there, but really where is there to go? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, completely realistic, <laughs> everything getting jammed up, um, people getting trapped in their cars, too, which is really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say the After Effects 2 of those roads are uh, were also really nerve-wracking. One of my favorite stories was actually the
1: downed fighter pilot. Ooh, yeah, let's get into that.
0: And and how she's walking, she's walking through and that's like she was told by the radio operator whether she exists or not. Um, You know, you need to stay away from there as much as possible because of all the people that are stuck in the cars. And since these zombies in particular draw other zombies by their sound, Mm -hmm. like that's the the big thing, because you can't just avoid them. It's like you can't be seen by them either. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that's a great chapter because she's, she's a down pilot and she has her radio and she's talking to a woman who's like on a CB and she's got a call sign Mm -hmm. and the woman's like giving her, uh, pep talks and kicking her in the rear end and everything. And in the end they're like, yeah, there's nobody like that. Like it was like, was she hallucinating this the whole time? It's a great little survival story, but you're right. Like there's obviously the cars and what you have to avoid and, and she's in like yep. the bayou, you know. So she's in the swamp. She's trying to get to the highway. Um, that's a tense chapter too.
0: It is, yeah.
1: Yeah, because she's on like a and and he does tension so well in this book. Mm-hmm. These little, little parts, um, like I said, the the chapter with the with the Japanese kid, who is um, he is a computer nerd to the point where he has no relationship with his parents. Yeah. He spends all his time. He goes to school. He comes home. He spends time in front of his computer. Just like any other teenager. And um and, and he's in front of his screen. And then he's so they're all so obsessed, him and his friends are all so obsessed with like um being the first to get the facts about the zombie outbreak and sharing it out. Like they're not even actually Comprehending or applying anything they're learning, they're essentially memorizing and gathering and memorizing and putting out facts. So they're not processing anything. And there's this great moment, just like with the great panic in the highway this great moment where he's like he's got the um he he goes out the the power goes out it's been out for days the net's down he tries the hallway his parents are gone he doesn't know where they are there's something in the hallway he shuts the door he locks the door and he finally opens the curtains to his apartment and he's like the city was engulfed in flames and i picture this guy like opening it up and it's just like you can hear the musical score it's just like He's been in his apartment for days, and all of a sudden, he just opens it. There's just chaos around him, and 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 the way Brooks has that character describe it, I can picture that at, right out of the movie, out of a movie. And mm-hmm. then he has to get out of the apartment, and he uses, he ties bed sheets together. <laughs> he said, "I learned from an old American prison movie." Yeah, and he's like. He's like, I never used any muscle in my body, and I started doing it. My muscles were like, uh uh-uh, uh, buddy. <laughs> He's just like, yeah. Oh god. Um and there's some really sad moments, like he comes into the girl's apartment, she had he had a crush on her, and it looks and she obviously had slit her wrists and yeah. stuff. But then the old the he finds the old Japanese guy's place and he finds mm-hmm. the samurai sword. That's a kick ass moment.
0: Yes, yeah, and I wasn't behind that character in the beginning Mm -hmm. because he, I don't know, he just annoyed me. I don't know if it was entitlement or what, but it was just finding the information. He wasn't doing Mm -hmm. anything with it because they could have been disseminating it somehow and helping, and then he would get annoyed at people if they weren't logging on. And, like, annoyed at his computer for... It was just, like, all this stuff. I'm just like, you need to go away right now. But then, yeah, once he finally had to do something, I think there was a bit more of a... Uh, I had more empathy, yeah. <laughs> I think, for him as he starts to travel, and then, yeah, I, I feel like his life really turned around also once he met his, I don't know, I guess his sensei, sensei yeah. to a certain extent, yeah, and uh, that was transformative for him. So you see how, I mean, just like COVID, I think really transformed people as well, mm-hmm. and you almost got to see like their true natures, whether those were good or bad. I think with this, you you start to see, I suppose, with any sort of panic you start to see who these people are deep down. So even though the superficial nature of this kid may not have liked him, I think when you got to it, you saw that he could persevere through difficult things. And then his life um, perhaps like spiritually really changed once he met that guy Mm -hmm. too. He just seemed like a completely different character when you're reading that transcript with his sensei than he was at the beginning. Yeah. Which was interesting. Yeah.
1: And there's a, There's a certain amount of self-awareness that he's using when he narrates that, too, because he's narrating it as a look of the past. And he's very critical of himself when he was younger at the beginning of the story. So he is pointing out what you're talking about, how they were all obsessed with these facts and things like that. And we know geeks like that. And we know the social media stools who like whose entire existence revolves around having takes on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about like, you know, any of our friends, I'm talking about the people who are like, they're, they never leave Twitter, you know, (laughs) like and, and things like that. So it's a really, you know, you kind of hate it because you, you know, this person, you know, and, and you do know that whole, you know, oh yeah, we, all we did was, you know, it was, it was accumulation and nothing and and nothing else with, with all the stuff that they were getting. And then when you finally use it, you're right. And, and, And there's a point as it goes on and on, like, you know he survives because he's been narrating it, but, like, as it's getting harder and harder and he's starting to apply the things, you do start rooting for him. And then, like, when he starts to kind of, like, when he starts to talk about how I needed to get to the street and he's like, Brooks is like, why aren't there, why is it more dangerous there? He's like, no, I knew it was open space. Like, you could see he was actually starting to that he was starting to change he was starting to figure out oh this is how i do it so he's finally applying them and he was he had been so like he realized that he was so good at organizing and and accumulating the facts that applying them came naturally too he was just using the same skills so from an educator standpoint i really appreciated that he learned something but yeah the in the scene with the old the old man and he's looking into the family and everything and it's like it's very very it's sad but then he finds a samurai sword and he you know, he kills the guy, but it, the zombie, but it's like a great sword. And it's like, this is his weapon. Mm-hmm. And it almost like it's, I'm going to honor this. I'm going to honor my, cause you know, I don't know where my parents are, but this is like, almost like an ancestor of some sort. And mm-hmm. that tie and that juxtaposition, almost like you were talking about, about, um, you know, where you have the Chinese in the beginning with the modern city and the, in the very, very rural town. That's very, very old. There's almost that juxtaposition going on here. Between this very, very modern person who finds a very old weapon and then the old man that he's with, who is who is the one who's burying every single zombie that he kills in the in the national park or wherever he is. And he's blind. He had been blinded by the atomic blast from Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a fascinating story, too. You know, yeah. Um, and
0: the shame that he carried, yeah, with them.
1: yeah, and and
0: like a stigma. Mm-hmm.
1: And Brooks really gets into the characterization of these people too. That that's the other thing. Like, he will get into, he will make these characters have unique voices, and they feel like different people. And that's not easy to pull off as a writer, you know. Mhm. So, um. What? A, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: No, I was just agreeing with you.
1: One of my favorite parts it's total satire in the audiobook. It's narrated by the great Henry Rollins is the celebrity compound part. Oh, gosh. I love that scene. So there's a, just to give a little bit of a, of a backstory here, there's a scene where uh, the guy who used to work security for this, basically, I think it's out in like the Hamptons on East, East end of Long Island. in one of these giant celebrity houses, giant celebrity compound type of houses. And all these famous people had hold up in this house. And they had like supplies for that were gonna be and weapons that would last them for like years. Right? They're just like
0: And a wall enorm- yeah. and a
1: huge wall. They were enormously equipped. Well
0: And security security.
1: Man, oh, and these people could have waited this out for as long as they possibly could, or at least to come up with a plan or help or whatever. Yep. But they decide but, to yep. <laughs> turn it into a reality television project, yeah. and the people really? on the outside, who at this point it's the Great Paddock, they're not watching E, and if they're watching it, they're seeing these these people, and they're going, these people have guns, water, food they could be safety and they start rushing the compound. So they are coming. It's not the zombies who are coming after these people. It's actual people who want in. It's great. They're like, it's a great satire of these self-absorbed, just self-absorbed celebrity types Mm -hmm. who are, who are so like, so about their own worth, their own fame that it does them in. And it's, it's, it's schadenfreude in a way and even the security guy's like whatever (laughs) like you know he just the 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 disdain he uses in his narration for these people he's like i was getting a paycheck and i think he bolts once he realizes that like you know i'm not protecting these people
0: yeah he and the dog
1: and the dog and it was just like i I just love that scene. what do you think
0: yeah it was uh, i i i mean i guess anything for uh well, were they getting any money for that? I don't know. But maybe it's just hard for people to let go of that once they're in that status. But it's all presented until you realize what's going on, that the, the Z's are coming. Mm-hmm. The Z's are breaking over the wall. But then you're like, oh, wow, it's actually real people. And then the whole thing is destroyed. So, yeah, I guess it's ego slash pride really does destroy you in the end. Um, yes, it was very disturbing just because mainly because I would say the wealth and how people would, you know, abuse it and, um, only gather their friends. And then you're looking at their little minions Mm -hmm. and they basically were (gasps) sycophants. I haven't used that word in so long. They were sycophants in order to, (laughs) in order to get in the good graces and be protected. So it was almost like, I was going to say the worst of humanity, but it's like, well, this is pretty bad. <laughs> this is and it's everything that people adore. I mean, that would, what would that be the Kardashians right there doing that kind of thing? Um,
1: Yeah, it would be. I, I think I think 2006 is either on the rise of the Kardashians or pre Kardashians. But though, if, if this were taking place in the current day, it would totally be the Kardashian yeah. types. Yeah. Like like these people who were supposed to care about in some way, like when you watch TMZ. Yeah. You know that, And that would be the show totally covering it, right? TMZ. It's like, you know.
3: This, of yeah, and, and
1: it's just, it's, I love the chapter. It's hilarious. It's great satire to me. And he's got a lot of these other little chapters here and there that are, um, you know, that are a little more serious. I find that funny. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but you've got like, when they begin the big sweep across the United States, you have moments that are horrifying and ultimately sad um one that i always come back to is the one where uh one of the guys he interviews um talks about how they were in like suburban chicago or something and one of the guys broke ranks and they later found him um having shot himself in a in a living room in a house and then it wasn't until they looked around that they realized that he had come across his own home and it's um it reminds me of Dietering at the end of all quiet on the Western front who was always homesick and he deserts the army because he saw like apple blossoms or something or cherry blossoms and, and couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, I think they found him and they probably shot him because that's what they did to deserters and stuff. And just like little moments like that that are just ultimately sad as, as they were falling one by one. um, yeah, there were some other. They, they find the church in that scene too. It's one of the mm-hmm. times they mentioned, and, and they come. It's a callback, and and it's little things like that, like you said, that kind of tie the book together as a whole. And um, when they finally reach New York, it, you feel a sense of accomplishment with them because you could see this hard road they were on, and there's there's a lot of sadness in this book, and there's a lot of fright, and but there's you know, I think it's a well balanced piece. Um, any other yeah. any other chapters you can think of or stories you can think of that really uh, stand out to you?
3: Mm.
0: the submarine one with the father mm. who was the captain, and how well, that's the whole i uh, something going on in China yeah. where basically the traditionalists, I suppose. Um, that didn't want to change much. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't, they blow up the dam Yeah. versus, uh, and drown everyone in the village. And then versus the people who were like, we need to get out of this. We need to start protecting ourselves. And so this group absconded with the sub, um, I'm not really sure why they took the sub. I, I guess just to have like a power play, but it was only this small group and they weren't doing too much except wandering around, mm-hmm. so I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But then they encounter an attack sub that uh, fired on them and the father thought that he killed his son and then you realize, no, the other attack sub that came and then China was able to. So that was that was really nice, but also to see what they were doing and uh, they gave electricity to a small island village they saw or they found. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also things I had not thought about really were zombies that I guess they would just sink to the bottom of the ocean and still survive and walk around on the yeah. bottom of the ocean. Yeah. And then they could pop up anywhere. That was horrifying. So all of those scenes where like people are swimming and then are dragged down. Those are horrifying. Yeah.
1: Scenes. And then and then there's a scene toward the end. And this is one of the little things I like about the book. Um Is that like he's with, uh, he goes down into a submarine with submersible with a guy whose task is to tag some of the zombies and and kill some other ones and stuff. And they're starting to automate that process. So you see some of the military and technology advancement that's being made as the novel ends. And I was like, oh, like little details like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a really cool little detail. So. I mentioned the North Korea thing. That's always a thing that stuck out in my mind. They're like, we don't know what happened to these people. We think they went underground. We don't know where they're overrun. Like, yeah. what is it? And it's just like, that's spooky to me. An entire country could just be deserted.
0: Yeah. A waste. In World War Z, the film, a CIA agent said that they de their entire population in 24 mm-hmm. hours. I don't know if that's likely or not, yeah, but North know. Korea seems like this. <sighs> yeah crazy thing we don't know much about so who knows yeah
1: so um to kind of close up i got two questions the first one is uh probably a little easy and then the second one's our usual um can this film ever have a faithful theatric adaptation and i guess we'd add how would you do it
0: yeah that's i would say it that's tough um we the World War Z as we've already discussed the the film with Brad Pitt is I would say it's more or less a pretty good film but mm-hmm. it, it it's 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 not this movie no, at no. all. I mean it's Brad Pitt like plays a former UN something. Mm-hmm. Ambassador? No, I don't know. He worked at the UN. Um, so not even an interviewer or anything. Though he does talk to people, so I guess maybe. I, I would almost feel like and I don't know that people would get on board with it, which is the problem. I that you would have actual little what are those called? Confessionals, kind of like they do at you know on M T V The Real World like and spaces, something like yeah. that. Yeah, actual interviews with people. Maybe you've got stock footage or something um to help out with it mm-hmm. in certain examples oh that was another thing we forgot were those um political or those more motiv- motivational oh, yeah, videos yeah. that are made that that was really interesting too but i don't know how many people could Or would sit through something like that where it's just one person on screen doing a monologue for, you know, two hours. Well, different people, of course. But I feel like that's the only way. So maybe that's why the only faithful adaptation will, in fact, be the audiobook Mm -hmm. because it allows you to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because the only way I could see this and kind of with you, it's like, how do we do this? You get Ken Burns to direct it. And it's, yeah, it's like a long form Ken Burns documentary, you know, with, with these interviews and maybe he intersplices them between things and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it just, you, you, but you do the stock footage and the, and the, the, the news footage and things like that. And uh, you can make it really scary too, but I don't think it's something that to the type of to I don't know. Maybe if when I say to the type of person who would watch this movie, that's really condescending, to a general audience. Because this is a very niche type of project, right? Like you you'd have to sell this to a general audience of like, hey, here's like this mini series that is this fake Ken Burns documentary about the zombie war. You know? And yeah. I think there are a lot of us who would love to see that, but like the, the numbers that they would want, they might not get, but yeah, that would be really cool. Yeah. So Stella, is this required reading?
0: I think cert, I I think as you do Mm -hmm. with, with your classes, I think certain excerpts work well. To do in class, I don't know if the work as a whole, but I I feel like to a certain extent it might elevate zombie culture just because I feel like this is actual literature, I've, and it takes on. This broad scope, it's a really interesting way to go about it. There's lots of culture and uh, facts that people, I think, would not be aware of unless they did a deep dive into research. So it's just really well-written and well-researched. So I'm going to say it's not required reading. If you're a zombie fan, I think it is required reading, and... Yeah, I guess that's what I'll say. Not to say that I feel bad saying it's not required reading, but I really like it. I just don't know that, you know, is this something that I would recommend if you can only read 10 books in your life? Maybe not, you know,
1: I, I would I would lean more toward the it is because I think this is a okay. horror book that I think really should be on like kind of the best horror post apocalyptic books list. Um, I think it's a good piece that you could use to like talk about, you know, for people who like different types of different subjects and things like that, like the history of the military and stuff is definitely in there. Um, I think it's 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 actually kind of fun to read, too. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, the format is a bit of an acquired taste you know um, not everybody's going to you we, you have to explain you might have to explain to some people what an oral history is and how this works so that they understand going in like what am i reading um so, so yeah i lean a little more toward that yeah you should read this is required reading uh but although what i would do for someone who might be reluctant to read a book like this i would recommend the audiobook over the novel because mm. of and and like I said, if you listen to the audiobook, you might you, you might disagree with me completely. I don't know, but like it, it the audiobook presents itself really really well as an audio drama, and that that's a good hook. So so yeah. All right, cool. All right, any last thoughts on World War Z before we get to our feedback?
3: Hmm.
0: I don't think so. I, I felt like I had something, but I don't know what that is anymore.
1: Okay. I feel that we, I think we did a dis- decent job. I feel there's a lot more we could, we could do a whole podcast about like a whole World War Z cast and like do the whole book from bit to bit and things like that. It, it really, you really could dive deeper into this than we've done in the last hour and a half or, or so. Yeah. All right, so we have some feedback. Um, that is all about um episode fifty-seven, which is extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, the first is a Twitter mention from Donovan Morgan Grant. Who, Stella? He <gasps> did not betray you this time.
3: For he once in his he did not betray
1: you this time because he said, mm-hmm. "Ugh, I hate Quiche." See, he did not betray you. We are going on the record. Don did not betray Stella. We have a Facebook comment from Jonathan Schaefer Ames <laughs> who said, I want to read a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court with you two. This has nothing to do with the current book. Well, I, well I, that's the list. Uh,
0: Connecticut Yankee. Um, who wrote that? Oh,
1: I'm blanking. Twain?
0: I'm not, Mark Twain. No,
1: it was Mark Twain.
0: Oh, I thought that's what you were saying, but you are hesitating. I remember
1: off the top of my head, and my phone is nowhere, so I can okay. look it up. That's okay.
0: I'll look it okay. up while you're talking, and then randomly um, shout Facebook out. Facebook
1: comment from Gene Hendricks. He says, your response to whether you like it, Tom. And I think my, my response to whether or not I like the book was that there's a good novel in here, but there's a lot of crap around it, more or less, mm-hmm. if you remember me saying that a couple months ago. He said, it made him think, ah, just like Moby Dick. <laughs> so... Which yeah. There's go. a good novel in Moby Dick and there's a there's a there's a textbook of whales about Moby Dick as
0: well. Oh, geez. Um it is it's Mark, Mark Twain, Twain, so you were correct in your hesitating voice. All
1: right. So we have two comments from our scholastic book buddy Robert Ward, and uh, I'm just gonna read them one after the other. So he says okay. I was a little surprised to discover that the book this month is another example of following a character on the spectrum. I picked it mm-hmm. up. I picked up on it pretty quick, although I did worry initially because the audiobook narrator is Jeff Woodman from The Curious Incident of The Dog of the Nighttime, and I didn't know if I was reading too much. Um, I guess reading too much into it. It's a perspective that I've never sought out, although I should have. Having similar characters and narrators is something I usually prefer to space out, but I enjoyed the book. Um, now, I'll jump out of this and say that um, I chose the book only knowing it was about 9/11 and the kid who lost his dad, I had no other knowledge about what the book was about. So, what we're going to get into with this and stuff, and 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 and, the, and and what we were talking about the similarities with Curious Incident, total coincidence. All right, so it wasn't I just want to say that wasn't planned on our part, especially on my part. All right, so back into the email. Um, that said, every reference to the tambourine made me cringe a little. I watched the film last week for the first time, too. I thought the nomination for Best Picture at the Oscars that year was undeserving. I never thought the film was as good as the novel. Um, And then he comes back with the second comment and says, I wrote my first comment before starting the episode and now feel like following it up. I'm a little surprised by how harsh the reception to the book is. I was initially worried about seeing something not there, but I feel certain that Oscar is on the spectrum. If he wasn't, I would hate him more and the book becomes... But because I really don't deal with children nor have too much experience with people dealing with autism or Asperger's, I'm willing to give the book and author more leeway. I agree with some of your criticism, though, on the writing and mindset. Nine-year-olds talking about wanting hand jobs or blowjobs from Emma Watson when she would be about 12 or 13. WTF? There's actually a few papers written supporting Oscar being on the spectrum. However, so I feel validation in my assumption. I don't think we have to like him as you may have liked Christopher from Curious Incident. He is a child with a developmental disability and suffering the trauma of loss. Also, it's 100%, I guess, okay to hate child characters. I accepted a lot, assuming my ignorance, but thought it was an okay novel exploring the trauma through the generations. Oscar is our main character, and because he is so alienated from his mother, it made sense to have a bit of a limited third person Although I admit it doesn't really hold up with its inclusion of his grandmother and grandfather's narrations while they t- that while they tie in don't work completely. I think that was one of our points. It's been a while. And that was Robert Ward's comments. Um, and we have an email from Jacob Sawyer. And I think that's what Stella is going to read.
0: Yeah. Yes. Former friend. Um, yes. And, and actually former student. OK. Hi, Tom and Stella. I enjoyed listening to your discussion on Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. However, I found myself fundamentally disagreeing with you both on the character of Oscar, and I was surprised at how grating and insufferable his personality and character came off to you while reading. I'd like to try to explain why I was sympathetic towards Oscar and why I think this book is a valuable addition to 9-11 literature. Upon reading, it was immediately... Oh, here we go. This... uh, Oh... Okay, we'll talk about this. Upon reading, it was immediately evident to me that Oscar is on the autism spectrum. Some context clues are his astute intellect and scientific curiosity, advanced for a nine-year-old, his difficulty slash inability to cope in high-pressure social situations, his tendency to self-harm through bruising, and his fixation on sensory stimuli and acute observation of his surroundings. The complexity of his inner life and narration, as Tom mentioned, can at times come off as more adult. To me, this was not the disrupting voice of the author trying to beat me over the head with this self-proclaimed genius. Rather, Oster's complex and abstract narration is indicative of a brain that is weird, uh, that is very different than most. I would say that the crux of this book is that it details the traumatic lived experience of 9-11 through a neurodivergent protagonist. By extension, we also witness the experiences and perspectives of those related to Oscar, whose unique way of navigating trauma also affects each of them. All that to say, I think that having accepted early on the fact that the main character sees life through a very different lens than me, it was easier for me both to sympathize with him and also not to question his reasoning and motives behind his actions. Often I found that Oster's thoughts, observations, or photos that he took helped to provide valuable context for his character. I will say that while perhaps not essential to the story, the photos and visuals dispersed throughout the book were very appealing to me as an artist, visual learner, and overall sensory person. The photos gave me a deeper understanding of what Oscar is about and the ways he thinks about and experiences life, which allowed me to see his humanity. There were a few times where Oscar lashed out, either in his mind or out loud, which present challenges to sympathizing and relating to him. Jacob, keep he, he keeps using sympathizing, and I'm wondering if he really wants to say empathizing, but that's just me. Okay. One of those times is when he tells his mother, yes! Yes. That he wishes she was the one who died, not his dad. At first glance, this is almost unforgivable, but takes a few but take a few steps back and things come into focus. Oscar had a very close and unique relationship with his dad. They bonded over shared interests and seemed to understand each other on a deeper level. Perhaps Oscar does not have as close a relationship to his mom, and there will clearly not, and there is an intellectual and emotional disconnect between them. Pair these things with the fact that Oscar feels betrayed by his mom, who he feels is letting go of the memory of his father by moving off Ron, and his heightened emotional state, and it makes more sense why he would say such a hurtful thing to her. I've worked with elementary-aged children in multiple settings, and I've seen the different ways that trauma can take shape in their lives. Even if they do not really mean it in the long run, lack Ashing out and speaking hurtful words can be a defense and coping mechanism for a kid in the midst of a tragedy. Like any nine-year-old, Oscar is in the midst of learning how to function in society. However, it is especially difficult for him to meet basic societal standards of acceptable nine-year-old human behavior due to factors beyond his control. I'm not very well versed in 9-11 literature, but from what I have read, I cannot think of very many narratives told from the perspective of a person who is on the spectrum and or their family members. I do not know if the author himself is neurodivergent, but I do appreciate the effort to tell a story from that point of view. I think that any challenges or hurdles to understanding and sympathizing with Oscar are in fact reflective of a greater societal struggle to relate to those different from us, one I have to face every day and to be more aware of. I think Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close brings something unique to the table and that it gives us a glimpse into the life and challenges of a very young child who hurts and pushes away those closest to him in the face of pain. You're a stereotypical, unlovable kid who is very much in need of love and help. Sorry for being long-winded. I'm looking forward to listening to the next episode. All the best, Jacob. Do you, you want to hop on? I was going to say I was first. trying to figure
1: out who, which one of us, want to go first. Um,
0: yeah, I don't know. Well, first of all, Jacob, uh, thank you yeah, for that. Yeah. That was a very well written email. You know, the thing I can't get past is basically, I guess, the past two people, Jacob and then mm-hmm. Robert, they're hopping on this spectrum train, and it's not. I. The author that doesn't say that yeah. he basically is saying that he's just a precocious child. So I'm I don't know what to say. I mean, where does authorial intent come in if these if people are reading this as spectrum, but the author is saying he's not on the spectrum? What am I supposed to yeah, do? Yeah,
1: it's hard. It's hard when you when you do a little bit about background. I probably could you know, have done even more background research if if I if I had the time. But reading it, it's not explicitly. In it's really, I mean, it's it's not it's not in Curious Incident. It's not explicitly stated as sort of like you know we're not given like a doctor's report exactly what Christopher's condition is, but we're given enough of things that we know what's going on. And Haddon himself has said, you know, this is what I was what I was doing. Yeah. This is something where it's like we're looking at it and we're like this, we're like saying, no, this kid is, is basically, you know what we were saying in the episode that this, like, he's, he's not very likable and he's very precocious. And the author himself is very precocious anyway. And we're being told, well, actually he's on the spectrum and I'm like, but I don't, he could be, but you're, are, are, are you speculating that? Or are you saying, well, obviously that's the case because you, you know, um, like, Four is not showing us that enough, in my opinion, and it's just my opinion. I may be wrong. The other thing that I need to point out, when we're talking about the moment with his mother, his mother is such a terribly underdeveloped character in that book and has no agency at all that... Anything that's said here is totally lost. You know, both of the female characters are not particularly well-written. The grandmother's a little bit better well-written than the mother, but we don't have just one narrator in that novel. You know, like, so in, in Curious Incident, it's all through Christopher's point of view all first person Mm -hmm. through Christopher's point of view, you get the mother and the father through Christopher's point of view. There's things to like about both of them. And there's things to really hate about both of those characters. And it's, it's very well, the, and and you're getting through his point of view and we're, and, and, and by the time all this kind of comes out and we see it, we've, we've been in his, his head, we've been in through his eyes and we are also looking around. Like we are used to it. Ford jumps back and forth between the grandfather and the, kid and the grandmother and the mother's never there and dude you could have added the mother as a narrator and i think that i think in a big way that graded on me as well it's like you you have this this and and i totally understand the that's how a kid's gonna react type of explanation i don't need to be that that explained to me i i totally understand that you know and and that's because that's how kids react to things but where was the perspective of the mother except at the end where she's like, well, I did all these things for you, which I thought that was just a cop out because we're all like, how the hell is this nine year old going all over New York City? <laughs> it is. <laughs> and yeah. and and honestly, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stand by my point and that he is in love with the way he writes. And he's in love with his gimmick. The the pictures if they're not essential to the book, they don't need to be in the book. You know? Jacob And I think and I honestly and I honestly think that the ending pictures of the guy floating back up to the tower is using somebody's family's tragedy as a prop. And it really, <laughs> really angers me.
0: Oh, yeah well, you're coming out hotter than you did on the episode I thought I was more intense yeah, I, about that that, that, it that just, scene at
1: once was but, fine but, but, I but just, why I maybe needed it's to see because um I just uh, maybe because I was in the middle of of editing and putting together and I'm finally done yeah, releasing a six-parter on 911 yeah. in popular culture and I I reread the the story the, the that I linked to in the show notes about the Falling Man, I'm like, no, that was actually somebody's, like, so this guy has a family, and the families, they're trying, they, nobody knows who the person was in that famous photograph, and the some of the families who they, the guy, the reporter inquired into were, like, you know, literally said, this man killed himself, that piece of, you know, that piece of crap, although they didn't say crap, is not my father, because, you know, it's... Yeah,
3: yeah. It's just, there was no empathy.
1: Yeah, that, but that was that that was the that was, the, uh, that, was the, that was the quote. It was just like, you know, somebody was like, no, that's not my father. Like, you know, because it's, you know, they're very, very Catholic and it's a, it's a cardinal sin. And but it's a shame, et yeah, 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 the shame yeah, the suicide, in Brazil, yeah, the, right? the shame of suicide, he was, you yeah, know, he was he was um, Brazilian or he was a, uh, Hispanic, Latino. And it was, um, you know, so I'm just looking at that. And I'm like, so for to end the book on this note of hope and he's floating back up and it's like, no. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. <laughs> so the uh, photos, no. Yeah. But I think it's just, a, I don't know. I, I, I get what he's saying here, but I just, I didn't, I, I didn't think it worked the way they're saying the, the way Jacob's saying. It, where I, I, just, I don't, I don't see it. Um.
0: I guess I wonder if this was, if this, if it came out that, well, let's just say the author said hard and fast, this kid's not on the spectrum, this is just who he is, then does that change people's perspective? If he's neurotypical, then does that change people's opinion on how his behavior is? Because we're given a lot of like leeway to him if he is on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, he's just acting this way because of that, which rubs me the wrong way because I don't like when people give excuses like that It's kind of like the boys will be boys situation. That means that, like, we can't deal with that. We're just going to, like, shove them under the rug and we don't have an exclamation because we're not taking care of them or, like, raising them well. So I I just have an Mm -hmm. issue with that. So if you were neurotypical, would we be allowing this kid to do this?
1: Some of the stuff, yes, because it comes from trauma and grief. Yeah. But some of the other things, I'm not entirely sure but then again where is the counter perspective from the other person in his life? You know? Isn't yeah, really? or like where yeah, it's just <laughs> there's there's a lot missing because, because of like what the author loved to do. And I, I, I do agree with what Robert was saying about like the grandmother and grandfathers character arc. It's like, why is this there? You know, I guess there's a parallel there, but the grandfather, it's gimmicky and it's like ultimately an unsympathetic selfish character. And I guess we're supposed to feel sad that he missed out on those things with his son and everything, but it's just like... But he left. Yeah. It's like...
0: That was his decision to leave. Yeah, yeah I don't, it's, I don't
1: it's know. Hard, it's hard to be sympathetic. As a father myself, it's hard to be sympathetic. You know, it's it's hard to be even, I, I can't be empathetic to that, but it's hard, you know. And it. I know a lot of it has to do with his own personal trauma with Dresden, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, don't, yeah. I, I don't think that's explored the way that, but again, I don't know. Maybe I'm not covering
0: I mean, perhaps, maybe my hang-up is this kid doesn't seem to have a lot of virtues. Many of the people in the novel don't seem to have a lot of virtues. Maybe the grandmother accepted. And so maybe if I look at it like these are a bunch of flawed human beings and looking at um, less moral, I won't say amoral, but less moral individuals and how they may react rather than 9-11 literature might portray a bunch of heroes. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's how whatever his name is, Frere. (laughs) maybe that's how he's going into it. Then maybe I'll be like, okay, well, that's a different angle. But I also still can't get on board. So maybe I should cut it a bit more slack. I appreciate everyone's opinions coming to us today. And I have heard you. I'm still confused. You know, I see all the evidence that he's on the spectrum. But when the author says he's not on the spectrum, I have an issue with that. So that's the only thing I can't buy, but I think it's just a book I'm not gonna like, and it's the first one to, I said to Tom before we started recording. I think it's the first one we both not <laughs> yeah. liked. So we're just in solidarity over here that we're just having trouble with it. But I'm glad that it brings joy to you, Jacob, and then maybe you, Robert. I don't. I couldn't tell from Robert's if he enjoys it or not.
1: Yeah, and and it's you know I mean this is a hard. This is a hard topic to write about, 9 11. Yeah. And also, and I don't know if I, I don't know if we talked about this on the episode itself, and, and, um, and I won't take too long to make this point. 9 11 as a tragedy within New York City is a shared experience. But I don't, know how much that shared experience gets across in the novel like what if his dad just died in a car accident would mm. this play out the same way like like take take away the national yes. tragedy angle and it's a it's a, a an apartment fire it's a it's a train it's a plane crash it's a um he's he's mugged and murdered. He's, he dies in a the car accident would probably be the best way because that's something that, you know, yeah. whatever, it doesn't involve somebody else doing Ran. something.
0: Yeah.
1: Ron was just somebody who lost his family or his wife, not an I-11 was, it was just another person. She met at a grief counseling group.
3: Oh, yeah, Ron, Ron, yeah. the other yep. guy. Sorry. So, like, I was if like, he, if you change the
1: circumstances of his father's death, but death, but have a similar track of, there was a phone call that he had, you know, all those little things, does it change the novel?
0: No, so it is, is it, is this and really think, a
1: nine 11 book or is he using nine 11 as a prop?
0: It's just that it's just a setting because even the people that he meets, I don't think they had really any, they, there was no one that had lost somebody during nine eleven.
1: Yeah. It's, and it, they, he doesn't have to meet all these people who lose somebody uh, because of nine eleven. That's not necessary, but it doesn't seem to be. It, it, it can be just like the pictures it can be excised from the novel and nothing and and you could fundamentally have the rest of the book so it's an unnecessary element it's yeah. not as integral to the plot as it seems because you can change the circumstances of the death and i think that most of the most of what he's doing you know with some with some tweaks here and there we could do You know, like his dad could have died in Vietnam. You know, like, I mean, just it could take place at a different time. His dad dies in Vietnam, but mom meets the other guy, the grief counseling thing. And again, it's just like.
0: I guess it brings the grandfather over. Yeah. And maybe he wouldn't have known about that via if it was a car accident. Possibly. But that's the only thing Mm -hmm. I could really
1: say. But even then, we're like, what is the, you know, what the grandfather What's the, whole, what's the whole purpose of the grandfather's story aside from him showing off you know, how he can write this character and, and, and his, and his, his penchant for, for pretentious weirdness.
0: So. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. I feel like we're in that episode yeah, again. So. But yeah. anyway. Well, I yeah. mean, maybe we're anomalies. Yeah. It happens.
1: Yeah, well, <laughs> they'll, they'll be coming from my English teaching credential
0: Oh geez, yeah. Because <laughs> I just right, didn't did get it. Did you decide if you're? What? Oh boy, did you decide if you're talking about this in your miniseries, or are you gonna skip over it now that you I read just
1: it? referenced the episode that we did. Okay. So, so I I went I I said that if you want our look at extremely loud and incredibly close, um, go listen to episode fifty-seven of Required Read.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. So you might not, even though you contradict Jacob, you might not consider that 9-11 literature.
1: I consider it 9-11 literature in the fact that it has the connection because it's in the novel. I don't think it's essential or required reading when you're reading about, you know, even fiction about it, though think there's other books and that, there's other now i haven't read a ton of the i you know there's only I, I mine is limited to a couple of novels and a few short stories a lot of essays and a lot of more nonfiction stuff so i'm really still looking mm-hmm. for the for for something that's really to me like almost like a definitive type of book or a standard bearer but um and i don't think i'm there yet
0: and that graphic novel right
1: yes yeah some comic stuff too so yeah. But yeah, we're,
3: okay.
1: you know, but it, I mean, it, it's, it falls in the category because it, because it does, mm-hmm. it has the connection. So technically it is, but, but at the same time, it's, it, it's not, it's not a piece that I think is, is essential to that, to that category because yeah. of the way you can remove it.
0: I should ask, um. Jacob, when next I see him, if he actually likes Oscar, because he talks about sympathizing with him. But he, I don't think he ever says, I like Oscar as a character.
1: And you don't have to like a character to like a story. No. Necessarily like but him I really like Yeah, I like Christopher, but I did not necessarily like Oscar. I was intrigued by the – I think I even said that in the episode. I was intrigued by the mystery. Yeah.
3: Yes.
0: And
1: if you had the kid in the mystery, it was the novel – I did not like the novel. So the mystery, the story, yeah. the thing, the thing that was the crux of the novel then that plot was probably the best part of the book. But yeah. everything else around it, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate. So
0: yeah. uh, it was just those letters just, that were so bizarre, it
1: was pretentious. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I don't need this. Like,
3: oh, geez, go
1: back to your MFA. So, um,
3: oh, man, go back to Iowa.
1: Or Princeton. He was from. He went to Princeton. I didn't oh, go to Princeton, okay. so yeah. There we go. All right. Anyway. I see. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, I'm back on Long Island. So. <laughs> <as it> is. <laughs> all right. Um. So next episode is episode sixty. It is another special, which means that we are not necessarily reading one book. We're reading all the books. We're yes, going to a, we're reading an entire section of the bookstore. Donovan's uh-huh. going to stock these shelves for us and tell us yeah. what we should do. Um, you know, we're, we actually, what we're going to do is this, uh, we're doing a genre study or the category category study. We're, we're as a whole, we are going to look at young adult literature and we're going to talk about um our histories with it, because, um, in case you haven't noticed in the years that we've been doing this, Stella and I are about eight years apart in age, um, eight or nine,
0: I just turned 16,
1: eight year, eight or nine years apart in age. Uh, and that meaning that, um, that gives us a much different perspective of young adult literature because you came of age at a time where young adult literature wasn't an upswing. And I came of age in a time where young adult literature was like sweet Valley high. Novels, you know? So, so, so we can talk about yeah. our history with it and, and, and how we came to, um, cause I think by now we've both read quite a bit of it, uh, and, and how we came to read it and what we've always thought of it and whether or not it has literary merit or not, not mm-hmm. um, how it has literary merit because, yeah. because that, that whether or not question is actually answered. And, um, so What gives certain parts of young adult literature literary merit, what other books are not, you know, because just just like um, adult literature, I mean, adult literature that is for an adult audience, not 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 the porn Um, adult literature has its literary works, right? It has literary Mm -hmm. fiction and has books that want to be literary fiction. Episode 57. Um, and it has um, trash, right? You know, it has, it has, you know, I have a, I have a great book called Paperbacks from Hell. It's all about crappy horror novels that Grady Hendrix wrote. It's a history of those. And these are all those B-level, churned-out page-turner. You got harlequin romances and things. These are not, you know, your average Harlan, harlequin romance is not um, Weathering yes. Heights or... Even though we Weathering don't necessarily heights. like Weathering Heights, but like, you know, it's not, it's not those, right? It's not, it's not your Pride and Prejudice and it's not your, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the classic, what we call classic romances, even Jane Eyre. Um, but <gasps> you think about Thank it though, you. right? Isn't Jane Eyre like one of the classic kind of rom- romance yeah, like, oh, romance, romance yeah. and the, but you have like your harlequin bodice or fabio cover type of thing oh yeah so so YA is kind of the same way right so we're going to explore that like what's the stuff that's really good literature literary literature capital l mm-hmm. in ya and what's really good reading but it's yeah popcorn you know so we're going to talk about that what makes yeah. it in our minds and stuff um it's all up for debate because we're just two podcasters
0: Just chatting it up. Did you want to give the website that you kind of wanted to use? If people want to look at that Um,
1: before. I will. um, Off the top of my head, I know there is a Time article that was like the 100 best YA books. And I will also find some other ones. I know YALSA, which is the Young Adult Literary Association or something like that. Um, is a really really good source and uh, what i will do between this episode and next episode on the website and on facebook i will post links for everybody in case they want to do some research beforehand
0: sounds good i forgot to mention something in our world war z it came back Mm. to me because of this and i think you helped me with this somewhat because of reading world war Z. I did that AP Latin end-of-year project where I adapted certain um, scenarios from the Aeneid and Caesar into zombie scenarios. Oh, cool. Didn't you I help think me I with did. that? Yeah, It was a where you had to come up with a team of different people like there was a scout yeah. et cetera, and then you had a scenario so that was because of partial yeah partially you partially that book which is a lot of fun the kids and the students the students enjoyed that and i enjoyed crafting it and and reading their responses as
1: well changing lives i know Right, well, that's it out of us. Don't forget, to, you can continue to lead, leave feedback on any episode or, or feedback on the mm-hmm. feedback or anything like that. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to email us and get in touch with us. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to take pre-orders for a Team Oscar and Team Christopher shirts. So be sure to get your orders in ASAP. And as we speak, I would say start... Figuring out who you want to be on your end-of-the-world team. You probably need a scout, someone who's quiet and can get some stuff. Find somebody with firearms. Also have machetes, maybe. Maybe a samurai sword. Who knows? But just get prepared.
1: Definitely good advice. Good advice. Good night. <laughs> Goodbye! How do I follow that? boom oh.
0: for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two, true, that's two true things. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Required Reading with Tom and Stella.
1: If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're
0: looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.
3: said i was a liar i'm not people think you are good but you are bad and hard-hearted
2: i'll let everyone know what you have done i am a free human being with an independent will which i now exert to leave you to marry you would kill me i'm a badass
3: woman what's wrong with that can't hold me back yeah i'm a badass
0: Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast. Join me, Stella, as I look at the legacy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. TV, film, radio, theater, er sci-fi, erotica? Pun intended. Does Jane Eyre transcend culture, time, place, and galaxy? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire & Water Podcast Network.
3: You can't ignore, you can't ignore no more. I'm a bad woman.